Well, I hope everyone had an excellent Independence Day, celebrated some time with family, maybe reflected the founding of the country. Uh, but we know, we know that some people uh, did not enjoy uh, Independence Day, the 4th of July. They did not appreciate uh, the things that we generally celebrate on said day. And they went to Twitter in order to let us know all about it. So today what we're going to do is we're actually going to go in and we're going to look at some of these tweets. and We're going to ask a question. And I think it's an important one. And that is, does the left actually hate America? Right. I mean, do they actually hate it? I'm not, I'm not talking about just have some problems with it here and there, but like just fundamentally despise the United States. We're actually going to we're actually going to try to honestly answer this question. We're not just going to throw out the typical conservative. Of course they do. Isn't it obvious? No, we're, we're going to actually analyze this a little bit and try to come to a fair conclusion. Plus, we've just got to go over some headlines. I know we don't typically do news cycle stuff around here, but man, the headlines have have just been well, they've been rather epic. Uh, and And I mean that in the saddest sort of way. So we're going to go over some of those as well. All of that and more coming up on this episode of Making the Argument. Welcome to this episode. Again, we hope you all had a wonderful 4th of July and Independence Day. If you haven't already, go down to the link in the description of this podcast, whether you're on YouTube or Spotify or wherever it might be. Sign up for our community chat with, with the link right there in our bio. We would love to get to know you there. We've been having a great time with different projects and things of that nature. And a lot of our episode ideas come from directly from you all. So please join our community chat. We would love to meet you there. All right, as always, I'm your host, Nick Freitas, member of the Virginia House of Delegates, but other than that, a reasonably good guy. With us today, my beautiful bride, Tina, queen of the bees. Hello, everyone. And then we have our political prognosticator and resident historian, Christian Hines. This is going to be fun. Wow, that, that sounded exciting. I'll tell you what. <laughs> have you ever have you ever considered doing like club promotion? This will be fun. You should. Did you guys this see will some be of fun. the? Did you guys <laughs> fun see will now commence? Epic epic uh, fireworks fails. I saw some videos. There that was were, a good one. Whew, I saw a few. I was really um, rough. I was actually sitting in this spot, um, playing a video game with Tyler. Um, and it was, I turned off all the lights that way I could watch the fireworks go off, but then it started pouring. So yeah, I, I, when it stopped raining, I saw him again. Oh, that was good. And then of course, our producer of producers, we haven't forgotten you, Nicholas no, Hamilton, sir. the good Hamilton that one that doesn't like central banking. Right. That's exactly right. Nick. All right. Good. Good. Well, that's, I'm happy to hear that. All right. So here's the deal. I, I think it is, it is perfectly legitimate for people to say, you know, I love my country, but I, I acknowledge that it's had a difficult past, or I acknowledge that it's gone through difficult times, or I don't like its government, or I don't like the current president, or I don't like the current Congress. Like, I get all of that. Like, all of that makes sense to me. Um, what I don't get is what seems to be a, a far more, I don't know, I, it seems to me to be more prevalent on the left. I know we have some people on the left that watch the podcast. Please feel free to 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 provide your insight on this. But it seems to me that there is a, a much more genuine disdain for the the fundamentals of the country. And, and part of that could be a, a disagreement about what actually constitutes the fundamentals of the country. For me, the fundamentals of the country and the reason why I think celebrating Independence Day on the 4th of July is so incredible is because as I read through the Declaration of Independence, I, I find some concepts there that when you actually look at it through the historical lens, the, the times in which these things were write, written, the times in which these concepts were coming about, they're pretty incredible. They, they were certainly no pun intended, revolutionary. There, there, were, there was almost no place in the world that actually shared the sort of values that were being expressed there, that were being written out and, and put into paper along with the various grievances that were being listed on why the United States was, was seeking independence from Great Britain. And, and it's super easy to go back and be like, oh, sure, they talk about freedom and they talk about all being created equal. But you know, at the same time Thomas Jefferson was pinning those things, he had slaves. 
I get that. Like, I, I don't, I don't feel like that's something that we should hide. I don't feel like it's something that we should, you know, be proud of. I don't feel like it's something that we shouldn't talk about or discuss. But I also think it's important to understand that at, at that particular point in history, slavery was essentially a legal institution everywhere in the world, right? So it, it wasn't, it wasn't strange that, that prominent people within a country would own slaves. It was strange that they would be talking about and, and laying the, the, the philosophical, you know, foundation for eliminating it. That's what was radical. And, and it's this idea that if America is, if America hasn't been perfect at its beginning, then it's not good. And if it's not good, then it's fundamentally flawed and we don't like it. So let's look at, let's look at this first tweet. This came from uh, Bree Newsom Bass. And she goes, Americans' false belief that this country has been on a steady progression toward granting equal rights to all since its founding is exactly what inspires complacency in this hour as the Supreme Court replaces the Constitution with themselves. All right, so this was, this was done on July 4th of this year. We actually have some stuff that we're going to look at. It's a little bit older, too, because I want to kind of show a pattern here. Was but, this one in response to the fact that they can no longer <laughs> discriminate based on race? Yes! <laughs> Oh, like this is the, part. the irony of 1776 likes. Yeah, this is this is <laughs> who the part is this that person? I, this is the part that I think is just strange, right? It's this idea that what we're what we're talking about here and, and, and on, again on Independence Day, she put this out on July 4th, is that first of all, this Americans false belief that the country has been on a steady progression toward granting equal rights to all since its founding. I don't think anybody believes that. I, I believe that there that there has been a, a general push in that direction, which I think is flipping obvious. Wait, you don't think anybody believes that? I, I don't think people believe that we've been on this. What it, what, okay, look at there. A steady progression toward granting equal rights to all since its founding. I mean, I do. Uh, okay, let me, let me say what I'm saying here, right? <laughs> There's a difference between a steady progression and a progression. Has it been a general progression in that move? Yes. But have there, have there, so you can't call it a steady progression when once upon a time in early American history, all you had to do is if you were a slave was escape to a northern state. And then they changed the law to basically with the Runaway Slave Act to say that you had to escape all the way to Canada. That's not a steady progression toward granting equal rights to everybody. What there has been is a general progression throughout U.S. history so and and it is and has largely gone in one direction, and that's been the expansion of greater civil liberties. I mean, to maybe we're just using maybe maybe we're splitting hairs there because I mean I viewed that in the same sense that like yeah, technically the stock market doesn't go up every single day, but when you look out across a year, multiple years, multiple decades, the the trend line is a steady. That's progression. what I'm saying. That, well, maybe we are nitpicking here because what I'm saying is I look at steady as steady as this. Steady as this. That has not been the case. We've done this at times. We've done it this at times. So it is it is it moving in the right direction? Yes, but is it always? No, of course not. And we all acknowledge that. And and what's what's so interesting is that if someone like Bree would bother to actually understand a, a U.S. history, is that what she would also recognize is that even when Congress passed something like the Runaway Slave Act, you had states like Wisconsin, which engaged in a form of nullification and interposition. Now, nullification is essentially when a state says, we think the federal government has overstepped its boundaries, and so we're not going to enforce that federal law within our jurisdiction. Interposition is when the state actively uses its own resources to prevent the, gov the federal government from enforcing it. So, for instance, when, when the federal government passed the Runaway Slave Act, you had people that were fleeing the United States that got into northern states. There was a place where U.S. Marshals came into a town in Wisconsin in, in order to basically take someone that they believed had escaped slavery and return them to slavery. 
And they didn't, Wisconsin just didn't just say, well, we're not going to give you the use of our, our local law enforcement or our sheriffs to help you, which is usually what federal law enforcement is heavily dependent upon is local and state resources. They didn't just say that. <laughs> like the Wisconsin sheriff arrested the U.S. Marshal, like took a U.S. Marshal and put him in jail because it's like, yeah, we don't recognize the uh, Runaway Slave Act in Wisconsin. <laughs> like that's that's some pretty heavy duty interposition. That's, that, that, that's a lot more substantial nullification than simply passive resistance. We're not going to help. But yeah, yeah. I, so, so first off, who, who is this person? I, I, she's like, an artist, grassroots organizer, you know, it, it, just one of the typical, like, you know, left-wing personalities yeah. that just kind of flies off the handle on Twitter. Okay. So I, I, I've got that context and I was just asking because like the second part of their, like the first part of the sentence, I disagree with you on like, but, but, but we, we just covered that. So I think that we now understand, you know, that, that it was a difference of interpreting, you know, interpreting a specific word, but like the second part of this person's tweet um, you know, since its founding is exactly why, um, is exactly what inspires complacency. And this hours, the Supreme Court replaces the Constitution with themselves. What on earth yeah. is she talking about? I, I don't I know what she's talking about, but like, first off, complacency. No, I've been pretty upset about the <laughs> the, the university system literally discriminating based on race for quite a long time. There's a reason why I didn't get into certain schools when I applied to them, despite having straight A's in high school. Um, although in retrospect, I'm actually kind of glad that I didn't get into certain universities because I was still kind of an, an idiot when I was 18. And um, yeah, the university system does a really great job of indoctrinating people. But um, secondly, I had this... Um, I had this exchange with this guy, um, just this total idiot, um, like, like contributor to like blue Virginia, if that gives you any idea. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and he blue was, Virginia loves Nick, but oh yeah, blue Virginia, <laughs> huge fan of Nick. They, if, if they weren't fans of Nick, they wouldn't run so many articles about him. Yeah. But, um, for those that are listening that are outside of Virginia, blue Virginia is a, a ultra left wing. It's exactly how it that, sounds. Yeah, just rails on Republicans in Virginia for the dumbest reasons, like literally the dumbest reasons. But anyway, I was having this this like back and forth with this person about this Supreme Court ruling. And I just started asking point blank. I'm like, OK, this is a yes or no question. Do you think we should be using race as a factor in determining university admissions? And he kept avoiding the question. And then eventually I I. I cornered him and I, I i made it impossible for him to avoid uh, answering the question and then he said something like it sounds like you must be a white supremacist yeah like i, I th these people live in a j just a different reality i feel like that, that's part of the reason we can't get along and we can't coexist is that like we, we just live in a completely different universe and well, what universe is this is this accurate no it wasn't well, and that's the scary part though is i see i mean there was a uh, there was a fourth of july tweet by ilhan omar um like several years ago where, where she said, you know, you know, 4th of July, we need to renew our, our dedication to protecting constitutional rights. And I'm looking at her going like, you don't believe that. Like there's, you can't possibly believe that because I look at some of the things that you want to do. I look at the, some of the things you want to, you advocate for. And, and like, this is an example, this whole idea of the Supreme court is replacing the constitution with themselves. All right, let's just go ahead and assume real quick that some of this is politically hyperbolic. That's fine. This is Twitter. We expect it, but it, but it's this idea that, that the, the great sin that the, that the Supreme Court has, again, replaced the Constitution with themselves. Nothing in this opinion, nothing in this opinion would suggest, like 283-page opinion, would suggest that the Supreme Court had just arbitrarily decided that the Constitution doesn't matter. What matters is their opinion. You want to know what that was? Roe. 
Go read the road. To, go read Oberfeld. Even the people that agree with, with, oh, yeah, we should have gay marriage in America. If you agree with that, okay, fine. You like that decision. The problem was, is it, was a, it was not a good decision. It, in fact, Justice John Roberts, who I'm not a huge fan of, and Justice John Roberts, who's also an advocate for the legalization of gay marriage. I remember what he said on He this. went so far as to say, like, you can celebrate this as a win. You can celebrate this as, as something that you think brings greater equality. What you can celebrate it as something that was a good judicial decision because nowhere in the Constitution does it actually recognize this. And what was actually happening through, and in fact, this is one of the things that blows my mind, is when they talk about the Constitution, they almost see it as like this concept rather than an actual legal document. And and this is why there was such a, a difference of opinion between people like Justices Stephen Breyer, uh, Breyer or Kagan um, or Sotomayor and people like Thomas and Scalia. Um, Scalia was like, look, the Constitution says what it says and it, it doesn't say what it doesn't say. And our job as judges is not to read into it what we wish it would say um, or what we wish it didn't say. And, and that's the thing. What what blows my mind about this is this is a complete one. Whether you like the whether you like the results of the decision or not, to suggest that for the Supreme Court to say that constitutionally you are not permitted to discriminate against people based off of race, to say that that's now a bad thing, not only a bad thing, not only a bad result. But a manifestation of the Supreme Court replacing the Constitution with itself suggests to me that, A, we think very, very differently about the, the benefits of racial discrimination, right? We, we all claim to hate it, but some people clearly like it. And then secondly, it also means it, it doesn't tell me much about your understanding of what the, what, the, um, uh, what the judicial branch is supposed to do with respect to the interpretation of the Constitution. In all, in all fairness, both sides have a tendency to do this some, sometimes. That's true. The, even, even on our side of the aisle, uh, people do have a tendency to be like, but the Constitution, and then they're like, oh, you shouldn't be allowed to say that. And we're going, wait a minute. Do you like the Constitution or not? Yeah. We have freedom of speech in this country, and even if it's speech you don't like. And so we run into it, too. Oh, we I, do. I'm I, being I, I know even-handed here. But this is ridiculous. To me, this, is, this reminds me of when Roe v. Wade was overturned, and people were like, you mean we don't have the right now to, you know, rip apart and murder our babies? And, I mean, they were just aghast that, that your, quote, right to privacy didn't include dismantling your children well that was that was also that was also very very interesting during uh fourth of july last year because that's what everyone was tweeting that's what a lot of people on the left were tweeting out like i can't believe we're celebrating independence day and our freedom at a point where women's rights are being trampled it's like okay what was wh okay let's just look at this what was the quote right that was being trampled well first of all it was never a right that appeared anywhere within the Constitution. You, you couldn't even do a stretch of it. The, the court in 73 went out of their way because they had a political objective, and that court's political objective was to make abortion legal. And so they, they found some basis in order to do it. And, and even people that wanted abortion to be legal that were good legal scholars could look at that decision and say, no, it was not a good decision. I might have liked the outcome, but it was not a good decision. It didn't, it didn't rest on any sort of consistent interpretation of constitutional text of understanding, um, you know, what was written at the time, like none of it uh, applied, like none of that. There was no, um, no federal prohibition on states passing laws to prevent abortion. Right, it, it was left up to the states. The Constitution was effectively silenced on it. If anything, you could make the argument that it, it's very problematic for the federal government to permit states to pass laws allowing for abortion based off of equal protection under the law. But 
at, as everything was understood, both at the time that these amendments were written, at the time the Constitution was written, and everything else, the federal government did not have a place in the issue. So what did this? What did the Supreme Court do? It basically went back and said, "Yeah, we we find that. Well, what about stare decisis? Stare decisis. Stare decisis is the idea that once something has become accepted law of the land over time, that you shouldn't overturn it um, without a great deal of consideration, which which makes sense. However, um, racial discrimination had been you know the law of the land prior." To not not only you know changes within the Constitution, but also changes within right. the legislature. So the By the left's can't... own narrative, yeah, it has been the law of it was the law of the land for like four hundred years or three hundred years from sixteen nineteen all the way until the nineteen sixties. So if you're going to use stare decisis in order to justify, first off, I, I think stare decisis is a total joke. Um, I, right, I have, because there can be really bad rulings. Yeah, I have no respect for stare decisis from a legal standpoint whatsoever because you could use stare decisis to justify anything from like child sacrifice to worshiping the, you know, you know, well, chopping whole, out hearts can, to to please the sun god. To, so let's talk about this briefly, just so we have a proper understanding of of the. I think the relevance of stare decisis. Again, stare decisis is not supposed to be some sort of bulletproof thing that says, "Hey, if we made a really bad decision fifty years ago, it's got to remain a bad decision." Because after all, stare decisis. No, what it's supposed to be is that when people have become accustomed and associated with a particular approach to the law, if you're going to overturn it, like for instance. Brown versus Board of Education, which I think most people tend to agree with because it overturned some really bad racial segregation um, decisions. You know, that was overturning stare decisis. But was it appropriate? Yes, because the initial ruling was bad. And just because it, 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 it they'd gotten away with it for a long time doesn't mean it made the decision good. However, if, if you've looked at a decision that has been made over time, that let's say is problematic or imperfect, um, it, it is perfectly appropriate to say, okay, what is the what is the best mechanism for dealing with this? But to to try to suggest that no, 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 if, if it's if it's already and and this you see this all the time, right? And conservatives and and uh, and leftists do the same thing. They love starry decisis when it protects a decision they like, and they hate starry decisis when it protects a decision they don't like. And so, I mean, yeah. the the better way to simplify the and I, I mean, I'll be honest, the, the the better way to like simplify the left's position on all of this is they like things that align with their ideology and they don't like things that don't. Yeah. Right. I, I mean, it, it, it really is that simple. Yeah. It doesn't matter what the process is or law is yeah, or precedent. And, and that's is not or, exclusive to the left. We've got it all across the spectrum. People that will do that where they go, well, you know, laws for thee, but not for me. Kind of yeah. Thing. But the difference where is they, it's like they want freedom of speech in this realm, but not in this realm, or they want, you know, uh, you know, certain types of freedoms for these people, but not for these people. Yeah. Well, I, the, the difference is, is that until very recently, and I, I, I do notice that it is starting to change. We've talked about this in previous episodes, but until very recently, the right's position was not, um, you know, we, we want to enforce our will on other people. For, the, for a very long time, over the, I would say over the past decade, the right's position increasingly was we want to be left alone to live our lives. We don't want to tell other people how to live their yeah. lives. And, and that has not been good and enough for the And we've recognized left. that it hasn't worked. And when you're, comp when you're trying to compromise with somebody that wants the entire world and you just want to be left alone, they get half your world. You, you know, know and and there is no compromise there. Nick so, no, said, yeah, we do need to push back. It's kind of like, hey, you know, 
you want to have a right to do uh, certain things and, and have money provided to you, well, then fine. I've got my Second Amendment rights. You need to provide me ammunition. Nick, you, you once told me, um, I, I laughed so hard when you gave me this analogy, and you said, um, arguing with the left or trying to negotiate with the left is like trying to negotiate with an arsonist who wants to burn down your house. And they say, I want to burn down your house. And you're like, well, I don't want to burn down your house. And then they respond with, okay, we'll count, we'll compromise and I'll burn down half your house. Yeah. <laughs> that, that is a really good analogy because that's how it feels half the time. Let's look, let's look at the next tweet here. This next tweet came out. This one got a lot of attention. It was from Ben and Jerry's. It said, this 4th of July, it's high time we recognize that the U.S. exists on stolen indigenous land and commit to returning it, learn more, and take action now. So <laughs> here's, you got to read the meme. The United States was founded was founded on stolen indigenous land this 4th of July. Let's commit to returning it. This is stolen land, right? That's the meme. So here's my question. Here's my question. Um, and, and look, a lot of these arguments go back to the idea of, okay, stolen land um, is an interesting historical concept because you, you, would, you would be very, very hard-pressed to find any land that wasn't at some point taken from somebody else. At this point, it's almost, we were talking a little bit about this, about the, the history of, of Great Britain, right? And the history of England. You, you had Britons, you had Celts, you had Romans, you had Anglo-Saxons, you had uh, Jutes, you had uh, Picts, you had Welsh, you had Irish, you had um, the Normans, the, the, the Normans, you had the Norwegians, you had the Swedes, you had the Danes, you had, I mean, it, you're looking at this going. British history is a layered cake. Guys, like, and, okay, at what point? Who do we give it back to at this point? Not to mention the fact that I think that the thing that is a little bit disingenuous whenever we're talking about stolen land is that a lot of times, not every time, but a lot of times, the same people talking about stolen land, if you go back far enough in history, they stole it from somebody else, and they're not interested in giving it back. Ben and Jerry's is not interested in returning the factory that they're, no. um, or the land that their factory sit on. But you know what? Using this same logic, you could argue um, that the entire nation of Turkey deserves to be erased off the face of the earth. What, are you going to go back to the Hittites? or No, no. I'm going back to the Battle of Manzikert. Oh. <laughs> like, return Anatolia to the Greeks. Yeah. It's rightful. It was rightful Greek territory well, for a thousand years. I, I, well, this, this, is always, this is always the issue. If, Where if, are the reparations, Nick, <laughs> from <laughs> Greece to Iran for yeah. Alexander the Great's conquest of the Persian Empire. Well, I want to know. I want They've to know. They've been waiting for over 2,000 years. Bottom line is Ramses II owes an apology to the king of the Hittites for the battle of, you know, uh, what, Megiddo. I mean, let's let's go if we're really serious about this. Nick and I could like just keep throwing out except like like the the French the French actually are colonizers. They colonized Gaul. It used to be called Gaul, right? And yeah. then the Franks came in. They were Germans. Yeah. And then they took it. From the the um, the Gauls, well, actually, the Gauls were wiped out by the Romans, so they yeah. took it from the Romans. So France is also an artificial social construct that deserves to be wiped from the face of the earth. Actually, I know some Americans that would probably agree with that. But um, like again, Nick and I could just keep going. There, there is no corner of this planet aside from Antarctica. And possibly uh, North Sentinel Island. <laughs> there is no other place on this planet that has not traded hands between different ethnic groups or religious groups or different cultures or, 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 or just, just even sometimes the same culture but different states that are divided, not, you know, same culture but, but different nation states. There's, there's no patch of, of, of green grass on this planet that hasn't changed hands 
multiple times, again, between different states, ethnic groups, religions, cultures, languages, like that's what history is. And most of history is a tragedy. It's but, only, it's only, I mean, let's, let's face it. There, there's a couple things. I, I asked this question cause I, I quote tweeted this and I said, I don't understand what everyone who believes in quote, returning the land is waiting for. Are you only going to return it if everyone agrees? Ben and Jerry could start right now by handing over all the land that they and their businesses took or own or whatever it is. They could do that. So why don't they? Why don't any of them do? Right? And it and it's it's the same thing where it's this idea like, well, we're not going to do it until we force all of you bad people to do it first. Like, oh, okay, so you don't want to lead by example in any of this. You don't want to actually set a standard. You don't want to actually demonstrate that this is something that you're so truly dedicated to that you're willing to to give it, give it back and then extricate yourself from the property. You're not willing to do any of that. You just want to complain about it on Twitter. And and partially that's because I think one they understand that there there is there is no real solution at the end of the road on what they're talking about here. The second one is I think they recognize that it would affect them personally in ways that they're not willing to admit. Um, but, but the other, I, the other idea with all of this that just kind of blows my mind and, and it goes back to the original point is if you really wanted to try to do this, because the, the idea with reparations, which we're going to talk about right now, the idea with, with giving land back and all of this, th this concept that the conquest ethic didn't dictate who controlled what, is a relatively new concept in world history and and it and it exists primarily as a result of things like just war doctrine within like Christendom now that's not to say that people didn't fight you know wars or or, or wars that ostensibly had had religious um, undertones uh, or you know wars of conquest or whatnot but the idea that you actually had to work toward and and it even predates some of the work by like uh, what was it um Oh gosh, not not Augustine. Uh, I think it was St. Augustine. Origin? Um but, it, but he he really articulated just war theory under like a Judeo-Christian value system. But even like the Romans who loved to go out a conquering still believed this idea of like causa belli, right? There had to be there had to be a reason to do it. But it, it's only been it's only been relatively relatively recent within human history this idea that you couldn't go you couldn't or shouldn't go out and take things from other people because you had the the ability to do so. Yeah, you were more powerful so you can just go take it. Yeah, that was the conquest ethic. And and I I was sitting in a college when, class. When was the last war that was under basically the conquest ethic? <laughs> Some people would argue Ukraine right now. <laughs> I mean it depends on how you want to define the conquest ethic. I, I would define the conquest ethic as for most of human history, wars were fought under the legal pretense of I'm capable of fighting this war, so I'm going to fight this war. Yeah. That th There was no legal pretense. The no. idea of international law or justification or casas belli, these are all things that, that just simply didn't exist. The Romans internally because of their own politics, would always try to say that every war was a defensive war. Yeah. Rome never fought an offensive war, but whenever they fought a defensive war, they would always take land and win and salt oh, yeah. the earth and you know make a desert and call it peace, right? Yep. But like, I so I think it's important to define like like what conquest ethic means, and and I, I, that's my take on on I, the definition. I would say, I would say the the basic concept or the basic concept behind this whole idea of conquest ethic was is that if you have superior if you believe, right, let's word this very, very carefully. If a society believes that they have um, the superior means and, and mechanisms uh, to conquer, you know, other areas or regions in order, in order for the glory of their own civilization, um, 
Because keep in mind, like to, to Christian's point, let's use Rome as a perfect example of this. Um, when Julius Caesar went and, went and quote conquered Gaul, that started as a request from for help from a Gaelic tribe that was allied with Rome against, I think it was the Helvetii, that were basically like 350,000 men, women, and children that were now moving into their area. So they were actually asking for Rome to come up and provide support. And Julius Caesar was more than happy to do that. Lo and behold, now that we've helped you preserve this land, you will do so under Roman authority. Um, so th- that was that was the idea is that they were still looking for some sort of like righteous justification for a lot of the conquests. And that changed over time. Sometimes, again, sometimes it was theological in nature. It almost always had something to do with resources or spreading civilization or whatnot. Um, but but here's the example I want to use because this came up in in college. So I'm sitting in an English class and they were talking about uh, Cortez coming to the new world. And, and it was the idea of Cortez coming in and, and just brutally um, decimating the, the Aztecs and native populations and all of that. And the, the, this professor who was an English teacher w- was talking about this as, the, as if this some sort of this idea of conquest and just taking things was unique to the West or, or that this version of it was especially unique to the West. And, and I remember raising my hand. I was like, do you, do you know how the Aztec empire started? Right. The, Az, the Aztec Empire didn't start because a bunch of Aztecs were sitting there, you know, peacefully planting corn in Tenochtitlan, and then all of a sudden the Spanish showed up. The, the Aztecs was a tribe from northern Mexico that came into southern Mexico, um, originally settled, and actually the first war that kicked off where the Aztecs got their got beat pretty badly was when they were marrying one of their princes to the daughter of one of the the chiefs of the tribe that was already there. And when he showed up to see his daughter get married, there was an Aztec priest wearing her skin as clothes because they had, they had ceremoniously executed her. Um, they then, the Aztecs then proceeded through conquest to, to take over large swaths. And there was something of a, a confederation, but many of these tribes, there were certain tribes that had a special status within it. Many of these other tribes were used for things like ceremonial flower wars. And these were war. These were essentially pitched battles that were fought between the Aztecs and other tribes where the whole purpose was to capture people. So you could sacrifice them to your gods. All right. So when, when Cortez first went in flower to, war sounds so much nicer than <laughs> when, when Cortez, when Cortez, really first, when Cortez first went in and took, Tenochtitlan, they got kicked out, right? They, they got expelled. Um, he came back later with something like 20,000 indigenous tribes or 20,000 uh, in, indigenous uh, tribesmen and women that fought with Cortez against the Aztecs because they wanted to overthrow the yoke of the Aztecs. Yeah. The, so the, this again, this idea that the West somehow invented this concept of colonization or, you know, conquest ethic, it's just not true. What it is is that we're living in an aftermath where because of the technological and economic advancements that that steadily gained throughout the West, they were actually able to ship armies to far greater distances than most of their counterparts or even they could earlier. Because I, I guarantee you, nobody in Eastern Europe was talking about Western expansion when the Huns and the Mongols were kicking the living crap out of them. Yeah, a couple things. Um, first off, the Spanish are the good guys in that story. Um, and I'm, I'm, I'm sorry, the, 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 woke left is totally, totally wrong on the whole narrative of, of your, you know, Spanish colonization of, of the Americas because the Inca practiced child sacrifice, Uh, the Aztecs 
practiced human sacrifice. So does I'm, the left. I'm sorry, but the the span. I've have you ever seen the meme of of the Aztecs, you know, doing the whole human sacrifice thing, cutting the hearts out, and then it's like the Spanish or yeah. or in the corner with their you know what you know suits of armor yeah. and crosses and stuff like that, and then and then the Aztec person says, "Oh great, here comes the far right." Yeah. Um, <laughs> like no, the Spanish are the good guys in that scenario. Absolutely. The, it, the, all the, also, this is proof that not all cultures are equal. I'm sorry, but Spanish culture is absolutely morally and technologically fundamentally superior to Aztec culture. Well, easily. Uh, here, here's the part that well, we got. This was another. This was another argument. That part actually, of the problem the left has is that they reject hierarchy. They, well, I, they, I, th I don't think they radical egalitarian. I don't think they reject hierarchy. I think they pretend to, but I don't. I don't think they actually do because I think everyone still kind of understands that somebody's got to run the factory. They construct their own hierarchy built around oppressive power structures where people that they say are now the oppressed yeah. classes should actually have a higher standard of hierarchy over everybody else. This is th th this is why the left will lift up idiots like Ben and Jerry's mm -hmm. or um, people like Cory Bush, who we're going to get to later in this podcast. They, they give them more credence than some random guy on the street yeah. because they fit into, oh, well, look at, again, look at their race, look at their gender, look at their sexuality, well, look at their income, yeah. look, look at these things, and then we're going to assign you a, a, a class status, and yeah. if you fit a certain mold, your opinion is going to be worth more than somebody else. Nina Turner's opinion uh, in, in the left's own twisted hierarchy, Nina Turner's opinion is worth more than you. Why? Because she's a black woman and you're a white man. Yeah. Well, and so that's what I'm saying. Like they, they do have, they absolutely, in fact, they, I would, I would go so far as to say they religiously impose a hierarchy. It's just that the hierarchy is very different from the sort of, so hierarchies exist no matter where you go. They, they just exist. They, they, they're, it's, it's a natural uh, kind of order that takes place. The question is, is how is the hierarchy going to be organized and who has access to the ladder within the hierarchy, right? So I, I think we should all acknowledge that there's some people that I don't, I am never going to put in the same time and effort to build something like Amazon that Jeff Bezos did. Um, and that, that's not because I, I think that Jeff Bezos is a morally superior person to me, but I do believe that he, he, I do believe that economically he had an idea that was very good and was willing to stick with it and willing to put in a lot of hard work and effort in order to develop it. And therefore he, he deserves benefits from that. He, de he deserves benefits from the over 1 million people that Amazon actually employs. Um, so th that's the difference that they're, you can have a hierarchy that is as close to meritocracy as possible, or you can have a hierarchy that is based off of arbitrary things like, you know, who your parents were, or in the case of the left, it's a hierarchy based off of victim status, which again, I think is a lot more rooted in Marx because the, again, the little excerpt of Marx is from each according to their ability and to each according to their need. Well, in, within that system of hierarchy, because it still exists, you're not, you're not elevating ability, you're elevating need. So then, of course, everybody makes a mad dash for how much need they have. And, and, and again, this is just Ben and Jerry. This, I mean, they love dumping on the U.S. And this is just another again on the 4th of July. This is when they, they decided to talk well, about this. Before we move on, there is a question yeah. uh, from Ins Insomniac Software something or other. Uh, sorry. Uh, the question is, how should we teach history? Is all history at some level propaganda? I was like, this is a great opportunity no, to tell people about the Tuttle Twins. But <laughs> yeah, no, yeah, I, I think. Here's what I would say to that. Um, the, the old adage that history is written by the winners, there's a lot of truth to that. 
Now, now, what I would say I think is teaching that teaching it in context is incredibly important. I think teaching it as context is important. The other thing that I, I I I always try to point out is that we we haven't. It's easy to both uh, deify and demonize whenever we look at history. We deify our heroes. We demonize our our opponents uh, because they're not here to defend themselves anymore. I I don't have any problem. But here, here's what I will point out. I don't think anybody can argue that America largely, when it comes to economic, military prowess, all of those things, has largely won over the last, you know, 150 years. Uh, we, we, really, we really started to achieve massive um, economic and military dominance within the early parts of the 20th century, first half of the 20th century, and we essentially maintained it ever since. So you could argue we've won. Okay, well, we're the winners. Do we only print history that is advantageous to our narrative? Absolutely. I mean, we definitely print history and we encourage through freedom of inquiry within our society, the going back and relooking at our own history in order to try to improve from. And I think that's important. The problem that we have now is I think that there's just been this, this trend, um, which I, I do think is more than just revisionist history. I think it has a political objective to it. And part of that political objective has to do with tearing down aspects of American history, which cause people to elevate it and want to protect and preserve and advance it. Um, I, I don't I don't think there's any question in that. But should should we always be willing to look at history from multiple perspectives? Absolutely. But facts are also facts. Um, and, and you can have a different perspective on the facts. And I think that's that's interesting. And that's always worthwhile to talk to people about. But the people that want to completely negate either a one person's perspective or deny that certain facts, certain well-established facts are in fact facts. And they want to do so not because they have overwhelming evidence to the contrary, but purely because it fits their current political narrative. I'm sorry, I'm not going to give that equal standing when it comes to properly understanding what happened, why it happened and what we can learn from it. All right, let's look at this one. Here's a perfect example. Nina Turner. Why are conservatives mad at people pointing out that the founders owned other human beings? Oh my gosh. I don't think anybody this is, is so disingenuous. It is. This is so horribly disingenuous. It, it would be like me showing up to your birthday party and spending the whole time talking about that one real jackass move you made when you were six. No, oh. actually, it's more like showing up to your birthday party and talking about that one real jackass move your great, 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 great grandfather made. <laughs> Before you were ever born. True. So let's look at this from this perspective. Why, why are we? Okay, first of all, we, we have talked ad, ad nauseum about this. Like, I, I, I want to find all, these, all of these people that have somehow grown up in America without knowing that the founders, or that many of the founders, not all of them, but many of the founders, especially the ones in the South, owned slaves. I, has, has some, I'm sorry, did that, did that not slip by until, until Nina brought it up? Is it Nina or Nina? Whatever. The point is, Nick is, is that, all. I've noticed that Nick has always called her Nina. I don't it's, know. It, I, I don't mean to like. I don't mean to do it if it's like a. I'm not. If her, is this if like it's a Nina, California no, accent? Like how you also call we, it almonds instead know, of almond? No, we know a lady that is a movie producer named Nina May. Yeah, we do. And so when he sees Nina, he's oh. thinking, so it's not, it's not, I'm not trying to do like a little name. Who knows? Thing. Maybe we're both crap. wrong. But I, I, it's certainly not not an, an intentional attempt to to mispronounce her name. It's either Nina or Nina. Yeah, it's but, gotta but, be. but here's the point. The point is, is that it's this idea of, like you said, this is intellectually dishonest. Why are we so mad at people pointing out the founders owned other human beings? Okay, first of all, it wasn't all the founders, so you got that wrong, former professor. Secondly, it, it's the nature of, it's the fact that it's all, it's the only thing you want to, you seem to want to talk about anymore about the founders. I've got like, a question The only for her. substantive point about the founders that you seem to want to point out is that some of them owned slaves. That's it. I, Nick, I have a question. What? Who sold them those slaves? 
You're not allowed to ask that. Oh, why? You're not allowed to ask that because the, the narrative is it was just the Portuguese. Apparently what happened was the Portuguese and the British and everybody else came in and just got off the boat and stole a bunch of people. It's not that they showed up to massive slave marketplaces that were already existing on, on the West coast of Africa, right? We're not allowed to mention that. In fact, who was it? Don Lemon got embarrassed pretty badly when he asked somebody about, it was during the Queen, again, when did he ask about it? The Queen's Jubilee. Queen's Jubilee, this was a good time to ask about reparations for slavery. She goes, you know what? I think I think we should talk about reparations for slavery. And you know what we should do? We should go all the way back to the very beginning of the supply chain. And we should ask ourselves, who participated in the actual rounding up and, and in, in, in enslaving of people and then sold them into not only the Western slave trade, but also the Eastern slave trade. And who fought to end it? Yeah. It was the Royal Navy. And that now they make, that, and now they it. make movies like the woman King to uh, glorify it. Basically. Yeah. She made, she, I remember Pre that they, interview. They actually pretend that that's not what it was all about. I, I remember that interview and, and this British lady made the argument. It was an incredible interview. It was only like three minutes long. And she made the argument um, that, you're right. We need to to trace the individuals whose ancestors served in the Royal Navy when they were fighting against the international slave trade and fighting against the distribution of slaves through the Barbary states. We forget that the Barbary states enslaved a million Europeans mm -hmm. in, in North Africa. We need to she said we need to go back and find the the living descendants of these ancestors who fought in the Royal Navy during this time frame and we need to give them reparations. And yeah. we need to take the money from North Africa and from West Africa to fund these people because of the work that they did to put an end to the international slave trade. And Don Lemon just kind of like shut the hell up at oh, that point. Oh, he did. Point. He was quiet. Because and, it, and he was like, well, it's a, it's an interesting discussion, you know, all these different points all around. And he just wanted to get the interview over and done with at that point. And the reason, the reason that I get so angry, not even angry, just at this point, I don't even care what she has to say. I'm not even angry. I just, I don't care what she has to say. But the reason I don't care anymore is because she has a narrative that she wants to push. And it's a narrative that I, I have argued this over and over again. She doesn't, she probably doesn't even realize it, but it's rooted in Marx. Mm -hmm. It's, it's rooted in identity Marxism. And she's committed through hell or high water to push it no matter what. Facts be damned. History be damned. I have a narrative. I'm going to run with it. I'm going to conveniently leave out things like the fact that a million white Europeans were enslaved by the Barbary states in North Africa. I'm going to leave out the fact that every single African that was shipped across the, the um, Atlantic slave trade through the whole triangle trade, every single one that went through the Middle Passage was sold by West African kingdoms that were enslaving other West African kingdoms that they defeated in war. There's a reason why when you look at the map of West Africa today, there's a Ghana and there's a Mali, but there is no country named Songhai. Mm -hmm. The reason there's no country named Songhai is because the Songhai Empire was the most prolific enslaving empire in the history of West Africa. They basically monopolized the slave trade to the Europeans. The Songhai had created a massive empire across the entire, this is in the late Middle Ages, early modern period. They created a massive empire stretching across most of the countries that make up this region today. They were the ones that were going out there, conquering other tribes, carrying them off to the coast and selling them to the Portuguese. And by the way, out of the Middle Passage, the overwhelming majority, overwhelming majority of enslaved Africans went to Brazil and the Caribbean. 4%, 4% of all enslaved Africans that were shipped over to the New World came to the 13 colonies in the United States. Overwhelming majority went to Brazil and the Caribbean. Half of them went to Brazil. 
have a question here that I'd love to jump to. Uh, Grumpy Acres Farm asks, isn't the genius of the founders the fact that they saw the shortcomings of the country as it was and wrote a way to change it to how it ought to be? Yeah, I, I think so. When, when you look at the original... Um, when you look at the original authoring of the Declaration of Independence, Thomas Jefferson actually put in there what Benjamin Franklin was a little bit concerned about initially. And he was talking about one of the grievances was actually the slave trade. It was, it was about um, getting people from Africa and bringing them into, into bondage. And so people can look at that and be like, wasn't that a little bit hypocritical for Thomas Jefferson to say that when he owned slaves? And you could say yes. And, and Jefferson actually struggled with this because he, was, he understood that there was a moral deficit with respect to that, um, if you if you actually look at the way that um, Benjamin Franklin had been concerned that Jefferson wrote it that way to make if if you were if you were condemning the trade from Africa but you weren't condemning the actual institution of it he was worried that you actually made slaves in the United States a more valuable commodity because now you couldn't get ones from Africa, and and Jefferson you know explained that no he believed that slavery was was a moral problem it was a moral hazard. And the question was, is he, he didn't know how to end it. Now, it's very easy for people to look now and be like, well, it's simple. You just end it. Oh, okay. The, the practical reality on the ground within at that particular time was independence is, is what they were trying to achieve. They were trying to achieve independence from Great Britain. Southern states, and that was from Maryland south, uh, allowed for the institution of slavery. They were heavy agrarian economies. They were largely built around um, slave labor. Uh, not Not... Entirely, not completely, but it was, it was a large aspect. It was a very uh, politically uh, powerful position over there. And so the issue was is that if you declared, if you declared independence from Great Britain uh, while condemning slavery at the same time, well, then half of the colonies, to include the most powerful one at the time, which was arguably Virginia, you're, you're now putting them in a position where they've got to have an internal battle and fight over the institution of slavery before they can fight the most powerful Navy and arguably the most powerful army in the world at that time. Um, and so that was, that was the understanding is that, you know, even people that own slaves, Washington, Jefferson, Mason, they, they Madison, they recognized there was something, there was something wrong with this that was going to have to be dealt with. The, the argument that they, that they essentially made was we can't deal with it right now because we're not going to be able to achieve independence. Now you, you'll have some people look back and be like, "Well, no, they actually fought the they actually fought the war for independence in order to preserve slavery because England was already moving in an anti-slavery direction." I, I think that's a, a very very problematic argument to make, um, you know, namely because some of the most prominent members of the South actually believe that slavery was a problematic institution. Again, that's your Jefferson, that's your Washington, that's your Mason, um, and then obviously in the North, you know, it, it, as much as I don't like. The, the original Alexander Hamilton on certain issues, one of the ones he was absolutely correct on was abolition. Same thing with John Adams. Um, same thing with, with many other of the, the patriots from the North. So the issue is, is that if you, look at the, if you look at the philosophical argumentation that was made in the Declaration of Independence, it becomes very, very easy to understand that slavery is, is a problem. It doesn't quite fit. And what's interesting is a lot of people on the left like to bring up Frederick Douglass because in, I think it was in... I think it was in uh, 1852 or 1853, I can't remember. Um, he wrote a letter. Um, in fact, let me just look this up real quick. Um, he wrote a letter about how the slave sees um, the 4th of July. And if you haven't read it, I, I would really encourage you to. He goes, what to the slave is the 4th of July? And keep in mind, this is Frederick Douglass. He was one of the, the most preeminent leaders of the abolitionist movement. Um, 
and, and just just an incredible orator. Um, he was he was actually a slave very young, and when you read it, you you feel like the the intensity and the depth of emotion that he is he is put into this idea where he's like when you read this document, when you read these ideas, and when you read this founding, you recognize that slavery has no place. Now, there was other people at that same time who were prominent abolitionists like William Lloyd Garrison. William Lloyd Garrison actually believed that the Constitution had to be completely thrown out because the fact that slavery was allowed in the original Constitution made it a poison pill. And it was Frederick Douglass that actually stood up and said, I think it was at an event over in England, where he said, the Constitution properly understood as a pro-liberty document. So, so clearly, when you had major, major members of the abolitionist movement who, who fundamentally understood. And, and, and I believe, I believe on some level it was intentional that they were writing something into the declaration of independence, into the constitution, along with these concepts that meant that slavery was doomed eventually. Um, not to mention the fact that the way it was, the way our entire government has been set up with a written constitution, most people don't understand like England, the UK does not have a written constitution. Um, neither did Rome. Neither did Rome. The, the, a written constitution is so powerful and was such an was such an integral part into making sure that the way that we distributed political power among the states and the federal government within the federal institution, among the executive, the legislative, and the judiciary, um, this was all this was all critical to making sure that we had a system of government that that could grow and adapt as necessary, but that there was a process to do so. Whenever people say the Constitution is a living document, I just want to be like, what the hell do you mean by that? No, it's a legal document. It's a legal document that allows for an amendment process, which, which again, is a, is a wonderful thing. But it's not a living document in the sense that, that a Supreme Court can just arbitrarily decide it means something it never meant before. So, yeah, I, I would say that I do think that was the genius. The genius of the, genius of the founding father. And you see this within like the opening, the opening portion of the Constitution. It, it was in, in order to create a more perfect union. They understood it wasn't perfect. In fact, I would argue they understood that perfection is not possible the side of heaven. But in order to strive for something more perfect, they put something in place that allowed for that striving to take place in a relatively peaceful mechanism. Now, it hasn't always been peaceful, obviously. But yeah, I do think that was the, the genius of the founding. All right, let's go to uh, the, next, uh, the next tweet here. This one got a lot of attention as well. Uh, oh, this one, I, okay, we'll go over this very quickly. This was actually an article written back, I think, in uh, 2020. And it was, um, and they were talking about, again, this, this was an article written from a left-wing perspective on the 4th of July. I don't feel independent from the oppressors of the past. Many Americans of color with ancestors who were disenfranchised from the start said the Independence Day holiday endangers com or engenders complex feelings. As an American descended from slaves, we weren't into it. Valerie Brown, a 49-year-old black woman from Brooklyn, wrote of her family's feelings about the 4th of July growing up. The hypocrisy of this holiday was not lost on the abolitionist scholar Frederick Douglass, who in 1852 delivered his famous address, What to the Slave is the 4th of July. Now he goes in it. He spoke about the sad sense of disparity that existed between black and white Americans at a time when slavery had not yet been abolished. Now, with gotta love how PBS un <laughs> leaves white undercapitalized. That's that's one thing that I've noticed that they've started doing lately is they'll capitalize other races, but they won't capitalize white. Um, sorry, I'm just bringing that up for those that are well, listening and to he us. He goes, not I am not included with the, within the pale of glorious anniversary. Told the mostly white crowd in an event in Rochester, New York, Rochester, you know, common. Ah, Commemorating the sign of the Declaration of Independence, your high independence only reveals the immeasurable distance between us. Now, here's what's important to understand. Here's what's important to understand. 
they are using this as justification for for people in general, for Americans in general, and specifically people of color or whatnot, to essentially disparage the 4th of July or to feel excluded by it. And they're saying, well, well look, here's Frederick Douglass. He was writing this in 1852. Yes, he was writing in 1852, right? The, the idea was, and the reason why he was writing is, is like the principles you're mentioning in there are not yet being applied to me. The, the problem that I have is that he was fighting for the principles to be applied to him. And they were. And they're fighting against the principles. Right. And it's like this idea that like he recognized this was a founding. He recognized this was a liberty document. He recognized the contradiction. And rather than throwing out the 4th of July or the Declaration of Independence or the Constitution, rather than throwing them out, he appealed to the arguments that were being made in those founding documents in order to explain why it was an agree, just an injustice that people were being denied these things. So I, I think it's important. Like, as we look at this, fine, but can we please understand it within the proper perspective, especially in 2023? Can we stop pretending that we're still living in 1852? All right, let's look at the next uh, tweet. All right, here we go. We saved the best for last. Cori Bush, Congresswoman. The Declaration of Independence was written by enslavers and didn't recognize black people as human. Today is a great day to demand reparations now. Oh, my gosh. Again, this goes back to the, the Nina Turner. I guess it, it is pronounced Nina. This goes back to the Nina Turner thing. Like, why why are people so upset that people are pointing out that the founders owned people? It's like, okay, well, again, first of all, um, not, not all the founders did. Second of all, we have all acknowledged it. We have all acknowledged this was a horrible thing. The, the United States has gone to incredible lengths to not only correct for it, but in an in, in attempt to make up for it as well, and, and, here's, and here's what we're learning. Here's what all Americans are learning. Not just a particular type, here's what all Americans are learning. It's never going to be good enough because there's so much political power associated with perpetuating it. That's why this is so dangerous because eventually there's going to be an element of the right that's going to snap and they're going to realize that what you just said is true, that, that it'll never be enough. The revolution will never stop. Oh, I saw, I saw Nina Turner. I saw Nina Turner when they were talking about reparations. She goes, you know, we keep talking about reparations as if it's an extreme measure. She goes, it's not an extreme measure. It's a good first step to actually making amends for, for past. First step. It's a good first step. Okay, so Civil War doesn't count, right? Emancipation Proclamation doesn't count. 13th and 14th Amendments of the Constitution doesn't count. 600,000 American dead to end slavery doesn't count. I mean, I, I, and fine, don't even count the Confederates if you want. Fine, 327,000, right? Like, you, you can go back and back and back on this. None of it counts. None of it counts. Civil Rights Act doesn't count. None of it counts. And that's, that's, what, that's what we're starting to recognize. It's never, I would love to ask this question for if she's serious about reparations. Here's what I'd like to ask The root word in reparations is to repair. So let's say we came up with a, a reparation system that you, you would actually approve of. Does that mean, and here's all I want to know. Now, we, we clearly what we do know is that if we did come up with a system like that, what it would mean is that people who did nothing wrong would have to pay money to people who were not direct, who were never actually enslaved. Right, but the, the argument goes is that it doesn't matter is because there's a legacy of slavery, and there's a legacy not only of slavery, but of Jim Crow. Let's be fair. Like that goes all the way, way past slavery, right? All the way into late 20th century. 
maybe not Jim Crow as an institution, but a lot of the things that, that followed from Jim Crow still affected and impacted people. Okay, here's what I want to know. If we actually came up with a reparation solution or plan that you would like, does that mean my children won't have to be told they still owe something? And I already know the answer. The answer is no. Because the answer will always be no, because Cori Bush gets political power, and she chooses the she chooses Independence Day to push it. And this goes back to the fundamental question that we started off this entire episode. Before we get into the kind of the crazy headlines and we lighten it up a little bit, this goes into the question: Does the left genuinely like hate the United States? Yes. Christian says yes. Tina. Yes. Tina says yes. Hamilton. Yes. Hamilton says yes. All right, I'm, I'm going to be the one that I'm going to go ahead and play devil's advocate here. So partially, finally, partially. for the first time, everybody who's listening, this is the first time in making the argument history that Nick is wrong. <laughs> no, no, listen, listen. I'll listen. I'm going to make a distinction. I'm going to make a distinction. Um, I think leftism as a philosophy hates the United States. I don't think all people who associate with the left hate the United States. I think there's a lot of people that that, because and here's here's what this comes down to. I know a lot of older people who fought overseas, who risked their life, who came home and have tried to do really good work and a number of other, that still associate with the Democratic Party, that still associate with um, what what they consider to be liberalism. And we call themselves creatures of the left. and and I don't believe they hate this country. I just believe that they have bought into a philosophy which says that we have so much, um, we have so much to make up for and we have so much to uh, repent for that it's going to take a great deal of focus and time and energy in order to achieve that. I put that person in a very different category than I do someone like Cori Bush, who I absolutely believe despises the United States. And, and, I, and I believe that distinction is important because I do believe that there's a lot of people that when they look at the Declaration of Independence – they see things, they see so many things that they agree with and that they like and they appreciate, but then they see the hypocrisy associated with it, right? And, and they believe that we, that has to be mentioned. And I feel like there's this overwhelming sense of guilt for many of them where they feel like even when it's a day that they're supposed to celebrate, they feel obligated to come out and say, well, okay, but we have to acknowledge this, we have to acknowledge this, we have to acknowledge this. What, what I think that makes me so mad about is that I feel like we spend a ton of time acknowledging all of the faults. And then when we have a day which is actually supposed to be dedicated towards celebrating the good things, right? You don't get to celebrate everything, but the good things about the day, we're not allowed to. You will not be permitted to. And so I believe, I, so I make a distinction. I don't think everybody that associates themselves with the left hates America. I think leftism as a philosophy, though, let me notice I didn't say liberalism, leftism. I think leftism absolutely hates and despises this country. I think they think that everything that we have is, is ill-gotten. And I think that the reason why they focus so much on the identity component, I think the reason why they focus so much on um, the history of slavery within the United States is because they have to come up with an explanation for why the United States has been so successful. And it can't be because individual liberty, free markets, private property rights, it, it can't be in, in, in limited constitutionally limited government. That can't be the reason because leftism doesn't like any of those things. Leftism despises property rights. Leftism despises individual liberty in the, in the conception in the sense that we think of it, where you have both a great deal of freedom to do what you want, but a great deal of personal responsibility, right? They, they value the collective more than they do the individual, right? They don't like free markets. 
Free markets to them, all, all it does is it, it, it develops disparity. And so that's why now every single disparity within a free market is automatically chalked back to bigotry, racism, or sexism. So I, I think leftism has a, the reason why they have glommed onto this is because when you look at the whole of U.S. history and you accurately compare it with the rest of history, you find, you find an incredible experiment taking place that has allowed for greater economic, social, and, and uh, upward mobility than any other time in human history. And, it, and it, all of that, all of that ends up being an absolute condemnation of what they believe because if you actually look at the leftist philosophy and you look where it's been tried, what you find is not a whole bunch of people living in a beautiful, wonderful, egalitarian society where they're sharing resources equally and everyone's happy and provided for and has health care and educate. That's what you find. You find degradation. You find oppression. You find crippling, crushing poverty. You find people desperately trying to leave. And where do they try to go to? Here. We have become the great Satan for leftism as a philosophy. And that is why I think the philosophy hates us. And I think a lot of people that have adopted that philosophy in its truest form hate us. I think there's a lot of other people that associate with the left. They, they, see, the, they see the legitimacy in the argument on the things that the United States has gotten wrong. Right. And they still believe they still believe in the foundational principles. They just see us as being a whole lot farther away from where, where I believe we actually are with respect to the application of them. I feel like that's almost universal. And the reason I say that is because when I was running for office, I knocked 100 doors a day. That was my goal every single day, seven days a week for about three months. I, I knocked 100 doors a day. And depending on, we were supposed to be trying to only knock Republican doors, but here in Virginia, we own, we do not have party registration. We have, all we can do is, is see whether or not you voted in a primary or not. So if you voted in Republican primaries, you were likely a Republican. That's how we would kind of assume. That's how we built our, our walk lists. So then I would go and I would knock all these doors. And sometimes you had people that voted in Republican primaries strategically. And they were not Republicans <laughs> in any way, shape, or form. And you could always tell because you'd walk up to the door and it would say, hate has no home here. And you're like, uh-oh. And then you'd knock on the door and they would be vicious. And you'd think to yourself, well, why in the world are you on my list? Because you're voting in my primaries. One thing that we realized is if it had American flag out front, you were, you were going to be well received. 90 to 95% chance. Yeah. If there was an American flag out front, chances are Republican, conservative, or even libertarian. Um, there was only, I would say, out of the thousands and thousands of doors that I knocked, maybe a handful had some sort of an American flag and weren't um, on right of center. So I, I think, I mean, there's, there is no, you know, gratitude toward America or anything like that um, on that side of the spectrum. I mean, and I don't think it's just the leaders. I think it's universal. I think it's become far more universal. The reason I think it's universal is because I've actually seen it. I, I would on say the 10, 15 years ago, I, you guys all said, yes, I, I'm, I'm being a little bit more nuanced, even though, excuse me, even though in many respects, I, I, I largely agree. 
I try to distinguish the philosophy from, from individuals because whenever you're talking about like the left, there's a lot of people to associate with that, that, that don't associate with this necessarily. Now I will say, I think that's starting to change. Oh, definitely. Um, I, I think that's starting to change. This we're, is the, this is standard left. Th- yeah. This used to be considered extreme fringe. You could only find it in certain corners of the internet. Now, now it's being parroted by members of Congress. Like yeah. th- this is becoming the standard. I mean, it, it's literally the slogan that that you know corporations that are explicitly on the left, like Ben and Jerry's, are using. Like, like it's become normalized, and this gets into I like Nick. I I disagree with you because I think that you're drawing a distinction that does not need to be made, okay. and I I don't think that you can you can separate the people who are practicing the ideology from the ideology itself. An ideology does not exist absent of of people who believe in it, and. I look at at what they are saying and and yes, I absolutely the left hates the United States. Absolutely despises the United States. And I have felt that way for probably a decade now. I I'm not going to read it, but there was a Facebook post that I discovered that I wrote in in 2014 that said many of the same things that we're talking about today about, you know, why does the United States have to bear the world's sins when we're guilty of perpetuating that which existed on every single corner of this planet? Here's something for you. Europeans didn't invent the conquest ethic. Mm -hmm. Europeans didn't invent slavery, Mm -hmm. but they ended it. And they get no credit for it. And, and, and instead, the left's narrative is, is that they're the root of all evil and that Western civilization itself is the root of all evil. Western civilization is the reason that we are not banging rocks together, slaughtering each other for, for, for you know, pieces of land. Western civilization gave us the rule of law. It, it well, gave mean, us I, the I concept think, of the enlightenment. It gave us the concept of individual rights well, and liberties. Okay, here, here's, the part, here's the part where I'm... I'm Go not, ahead and disagree. No, I'm not disagreeing. <laughs> I'm not disagreeing. When you say the West gave us... I, I the problem that I have with that it is not that I don't think that that when you when you look at um, because I, I think we have to be more specific it, it's not that there was no such thing as the rule of law in other places within the world that's not true you you did have civilizations you did have civilizations that that through their own experiences through their own religious institutions and whatnot were also developing you know systems that were not all rooted in slavery and conquest. They were inferior okay. systems. The, the point, the problem that I have whenever we go back to this term of when we, when we talk about it exclusively from geographical components is it builds into this idea, which is a garbage idea, that culture and race are synonymous terms. You, you want to make, make a modern-day college class really uncomfortable? We were sitting in a class in college, and they kept I, this this white professor. Here, I'll, I'll say his race. That way, nobody thinks white professor was talking about black culture. This black culture. This black culture. This black culture. This. And I raised my hand and I said, "I don't think I understand what you're trying to say." Keep in mind, the classroom was a very very diverse classroom. And he goes, "What do you mean?" I said, well, "What do you mean when you say culture?" And he goes, "Well, what do you think it should mean?" I said. I, I said, okay. I said, Daniel Bell had a definition that I thought was fairly useful. It was culture is society's attempt to come up with a coherent set of answers to the existential questions that we face throughout our lives. Put very, very simply, what it means is the various traditions, the answers, the, the, the challenges that all of us face within a community 
right, end up being kind of the common sense of that community. They end up being the institutions and, and the ideas that we kind of rely on in order to interact, in order to answer, answer these basic questions about what am I here for? How do I work with other people? How do I not bump into other people? How do I respect other people? How do I do, how do, I do these things? And these institutions end up becoming our, our culture. And, and they're found in music, they're found in dress, they're found in religion, they're found in politi- politics, they're found in economics, they're found in our cooking, they're found in all of these things. And he goes, okay, he goes, I, I, then what's your problem? I said, I don't understand what you mean when you say black culture. Now everything got really quiet. And I said, are you telling me that if I talk to a black person in Los Angeles, a black person in Mobile, Alabama, a black person in Johannesburg, a black person in... Cairo, a black person in Paris, a black person in Moscow, and I ask them a question, an existential question, they're all going to give me the exact same answer because of the melanin level on their skin? I said, because honestly, that seems like a kind of a racist, stereotypical comment to me. And that's when all of a sudden the class turned on him. <laughs> because it was. It was this idea that, no, 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 this is... I, I'm I not thought, arguing now listen, now that listen, Western wait, wait, culture stop, is stop, based stop. on race. I'm not done. I'm not done. Okay. I'm sorry. This is important. I'm not arguing that people of a particular skin color or a particular race can't actually share those experiences. The, the bottom line is that I, I would fully expect people that were growing up in an enslaved community in which they were enslaved based off of their skin color would have shared experiences for which a culture would develop around. That makes perfect sense. My problem is then when, when, when we all of a sudden add these geographical descriptions of something as if it belongs to that and it doesn't, these concepts of individual liberty, these concepts of the laws of logic, these concepts of free market economics, yes, you, you can give Adam Smith an incredible amount of credit for, for the development of, of modern concepts of capitalism and free market economics. You can do the same thing with the Austrian school. You will also find people in South America and China at different times developing different concepts that were very, very similar, but didn't catch on to the same degree that they did in the West. And the point that I'm trying to make that I think is so critical for all of this discussion is that truth is truth and it belongs to all of us. Nobody gets, nobody gets a racial monopoly on it. They don't get a geographical monopoly on it. The real question is when a society embraces things that are true and they apply them and they succeed as a result, it is perfectly acceptable to look at that and say, you know what? That cultural has made some really good decisions about what is true and what is not. And they have applied them in a way that has made that society more prosperous, more healthy, more free, more open to freedom of inquiry. But one of the biggest problems I think we have right now is that we, we want to focus exclusively on this idea that it is, a, it is a, a geographical manifestation as opposed to a representation of a particular society adopting things that were true and having it be widely, wildly successful for them. And, and the idea that, no, it, be, it can belong to anybody that wants to apply it. It can belong to anybody that wants to apply it. And, and, and when they do apply it, it's not that they've applied this Western thing. They've applied something that was true. And that's what I think is so important. And that's what I think has been missing through so much of it. It's not that I don't think that we should have a great deal of appreciation. Obviously, I do. Obviously, I love 
the fact, I, I love the Declaration of Independence. I love the way it's written, not because it's perfect, but because, my gosh, it was so revolutionary for the time. It was so revolutionary throughout, throughout history. But I, I, don't want to, I don't want to embrace the idea that ideas are somehow exclusively associated based off of race or geography. I think, I think ideas are largely true or false. I need to clarify my position then because I'm, I'm not saying that, that, that you're doing that, but I feel like that there's a way that somebody could have listened to the last 10 minutes or so and thought, oh, Christian is taking the racist white nationalist no, approach. No, I, know you, I know you don't mean that. I know you don't mean that. So I don't mean to imply that. When I say Western civilization gave us these things, I don't think that is an inaccurate term. I understand that if, everything that Nick said was very compelling, but there there are disagreements between us here. Nick does take issue with the phrase Western civilization. I don't, but that is not because I'm associating Western civilization with a particular race or skin color. Back in the Roman era, the Romans would not have viewed the entirety of Europe as being the same race yeah. <laughs> at all. They, they would have said there's very big differences between the Celts and the Gauls and the Greeks. They're not the same from the Roman perspective. In our modern American sense, we would say, oh, they're all white. But the Romans would not say they're all white. They would say that's a Greek, that's a Gaul, that's you know a, a, a Celt, whatever, and we're Romans. Um, but um, so, so I, I'm not saying that Western civilization is built around skin color, but I am saying Western civilization is built, and here's where I agree with you: the Western civilization is built around a set of ideas that popped up in a particular area. Why did they pop up in a particular area? We could come up with a million reasons why they popped up in a particular area, but the fact is, is that they did. They did pop up in a particular area, and that is a particular area in the world that the the left is trying to pin all of the sins of humanity upon that, no, I there is a that. problem with that they're not do you see the left complaining about the mongol conquests a lot no, no no they complain about european colonization and slavery from a european perspective and then they try to build a coalition politically around attacking everything that came out of europe as being the manifestation of evil and that is factually incorrect historically incorrect it's also racist and it goes against all of the other ideas that came out of Europe, everything like the Enlightenment. And yes, there are things from the Enlightenment that I disagree with. I'm not a huge Rousseau fan, not a huge Voltaire <laughs> fan, yeah. but I am a huge John Locke fan. Yeah. I'm a huge fan in the separation of powers. I'm a huge fan in things like individual liberty. I'm a huge fan in individualism, in, in, in the concept of liberty itself, the Eastern part of the world. I'm a huge fan of Eastern philosophy. Anybody that gets to know me, um, I, I, if, if I were not a Christian, I probably would be a Buddhist. I, 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 I greatly, I, I have a tremendous amount of respect for, for Eastern philosophy and history. I find Chinese and Indian history to be incredibly fascinating. But it wasn't China or India that came up with these concepts that, that, that built the United States, that, that, that made the United States the freest, most prosperous country on earth. It simply didn't come from China and India. That doesn't mean China and India are worthless. They contributed plenty of things. The Chinese were the inventors of many things that the Europeans then perfected and used to, to get themselves an advantage over. And it was China's problem that they viewed themselves as the middle kingdom. We don't want to get anything from anybody else. Yeah, the it, Europeans, was, it was when China became isolationist. The Europeans behind. wanted to, to take the best things from the world and perfect it. And they did in many respects. The Chinese fell behind technologically because they didn't and and but that doesn't mean that china's worthless but it does mean that that 
our concepts that, that we derive the Declaration of Independence from, they didn't come from China. They didn't come from Confucianism. They didn't come from Buddhism. They didn't come from Hinduism. They, they, they certainly didn't come from legalism, right? Like they came from the writings of people in Western Europe, particularly from the United Kingdom, because we, we obviously, you know, derive our, our, our historical existence from the British. We were a former British colony and we get a lot of, of our legal influence, system from yeah. British common law. And we certainly get our political influence from British writers like John Locke. Mm -hmm. Like those are things worth defending. And I'm not going to allow the left to tear those things down because the Europeans colonized the world. Why? Because they were better at doing what the Mongols tried to do. No, I think, I think that is a totally fair statement. And, and again, I don't, I don't, I, at no point did I mean to imply that you were suggesting that this was what, what I don't, I know you, so I know what you believe. I know why you believe it pretty well, right? Pretty well. What, what I'm, what I'm always, what I'm always cautious about it is how, how the things that we say within the context of our understanding of what we believe and why we believe it then gets manipulated by people like Cory Bush and, and, it, and it's become so prevalent that that's the only reason I felt it necessary to make that clarification. Because again, I, I sat there in college classrooms with professors debating and arguing with them about this idea that, that the, that the West in general was uniquely guilty of everything and, and responsible for nothing good to the extent that we did anything good. It was because we ripped it off from somebody else. Well, they love to say that, but then guess what else is uh, distinctly Western that is much more modern concept. Mm -hmm. I mean, this whole wokeism. Chinese culture right now is absolutely being devastated by Western philosophy okay. in the form of Marxism. I, I was actually talking about the gender ideology stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Because if you have ever seen what is a woman, it was really interesting when he went to um, a tribe in Africa and started talking about what some of these people, uh, believe and espouse in the u.s and they were thinking we don't want to go to the u.s places everybody's crazy there yeah so you know it's everything comes full circle i guess well let's go let's go on to a couple of that uh, was a good exchange yeah i i i, I because everyone likes it when christian i mix it up hey, so there was a question <laughs> from uh but before you guys got off on your whole long tangent, well, let me. You see. find that question. I'm also going to thank Board Boxing for the donation. Thank you very much. Also, he was. I guess he got a gun club in Richmond. Also, a two two seven and go Wolfhounds. All right, man. Yeah, no. We, we let's let's definitely get in touch. We'd love to. would love to talk to you about that. And thank you very much for watching. And thank you for donating. Okay. Well, ah, why can't I find it? They've been very busy in the chat. Well, let's. Um, let's okay. Okay. So, Brett, uh, Brian, Brian Betts. I can't find the comment now, but it basically said, would you ever have a, a liberal who's, you know, respectful and intelligent and logical, that kind of thing, um, come on to share alternating views and, yeah. and see yeah, if there's absolutely. any compromise to be had? No, no, so, absolutely. I'm sorry, absolutely. Brian, I couldn't find where your question was, well, but I hope I summed it up okay. I, I'd, I'd love to see you, uh, because Nick loves debate. I'd give up my seat to watch. <laughs> Um, somebody on the left. Well, I, I, what was the, what was the, oh gosh, I, 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 the term you used the other day where it's not a, um, 
I, I love to theolocution. Debate, yeah, theolocution. Where theolocution is the idea where two people sit together and essentially share perspectives and ideas in order to determine where there's overlap, where there's disagreement. And 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 the the emphasis is on why they believe what they believe. Yeah. Right. Like, yeah. what's the underlying philosophy behind it? It's not necessarily to debate. It's it's to exchange ideas and understand the perspective. Because in some ways, think about. There's one thing that the left does say on 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 this field that I do think has some merit. I just think that they 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 take it in a wrong direction, which is the whole lived experiences. It's yeah. it, it's not that lived experiences are worthless. It's that empirical data is worth more than lived experiences. Yeah, but yeah. that doesn't mean that that lived experiences themselves are worthless. Like they're obviously lived experiences influence all of our lives. Nick does not have the same lived experience as me, even though we share probably in the neighborhood of 90% of political opinions. Um, we certainly are approach things from a different perspective, right? And I, I do think that it's it's quite valuable to try to understand why does somebody believe what they believe? Because, Nick, you said something in, in today's episode that I think it is worth understanding from the right, that the right sometimes doesn't think about because people like Cori Bush or Nina Turner, when they say these things, it, it comes across as needlessly provocative and hateful towards, again, I'm going to say it, Western civilization and everything that, that, that the United States inherits from that. And I will say this, though. It is absolutely true. You, you can't argue otherwise that somebody that is black living in the United States, they didn't immigrate here from West Africa at any point later in time. And there are actually plenty yeah. of them that, that, that do. Um, there's plenty of black Americans that do not trace themselves back to slavery mm -hmm. um, because we're a country that also accepts people from around the world as well. But it's absolutely true that if, you know, you are a black American living in the South in like Mississippi and you, you've had generations of people living there and you were not somebody that came over, you know, your family came over in the you know 1980s from Liberia or something yeah. like that. Yes, statistically, almost certainly you are a descendant from slaves. And if you are a descendant from slaves, of course that's going to influence the way that you look at things. How could it not? If I, if I lived in a country where people of my skin color historically uh, several centuries ago were almost, were almost unanimously enslaved by the people living in that country who – several centuries later are still the majority of people living in that country. Even if it wasn't a majority, like if I lived in China and let's say hypothetically China had a history of enslaving Koreans. Mm -hmm. In fact, actually you could argue that they did. Korea was a vassal state of China for a long time. And let's say that I was a Korean living in China in this hypothetical scenario where China had conquered and enslaved all the Koreans and, and several centuries later, China had abolished slavery, but I was still a Korean living in China. Of course that would impact the way that I view Chinese society, how could it not? Mm -hmm. it, it's it's totally legitimate for it to do so. And and I don't think that anybody who's on the right that actually thinks about this honestly could argue otherwise. How could it not? Yeah. Fred, Fred Douglas is totally right that what, what to a slave is the 4th of July. It's a legitimate point to make. But what I think the left misses on that is that they want to dwell on that and simply say, and this is why the United States is this evil, racist, bigoted, you know, society that, you know, we demand reparations and we need to tear down all the existing social institutions to basically reform identity Marxism. I, obviously, I disagree with all that. But part of the reason that it's such a nefarious sell to people is because it starts from a premise that is is arguably inassailable. Yeah. And and if if the right wants to make the argument 
There's the there's the tagline, Hamilton. Um, if, if the right really wants to make the argument on this, I think that the, they they do need to figure out how, how do you address that 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 that, that whole point. I think Frederick D- Douglass actually did do a good job of addressing well, it. If you actually read the rest of his speech, which they conveniently leave yeah. out in a lot of these articles. Well, I, I think the, I think the biggest the biggest problem. Gosh, I'm not even sure if we're going to get the headlines. <laughs> the biggest the biggest problem that I, I have with so, like you said, I, I think what's what's happening here is that there's legitimate uses for what you just described and there's illegitimate uses for what you just described. So to, to point back and say, okay, all the way back to the founding, there was a, there was a, you know, a, a group of people within the United States that didn't have the same rights as everybody else. And oh, by the way, that wasn't just uh, black people who had been enslaved. What about women? Women didn't have the right to vote in the, in the United States and in most States a, until what was it? 1919. Uh, it was the 19th amendment to the constitution that actually, um, uh, it was just in time for the 20, uh, 1920 election. So yeah. it was either 1919 or early 1920. It was the 19th Amendment of the Constitution. So it's like, well, you know, how can we be proud? The, the issue that I go back to on so much so much of this is, and, and this is something Thomas Sowell likes to point out and so many other people as well, and that's like, compared to what? Like, can, can we just for a moment recognize that when, when, you're, when you're looking back on history through the lens of what you experience today and what is considered common sense and, and just well understood today, that that the reason why people believe something differently a hundred years ago maybe wasn't because everyone was just a stupid, ignorant, you know, horrible moron, and only if they could have been more like you. No, they lived in very different times. They had very different experiences. They had lived experiences that were very different. And some of the things that they bought into were bad. And some of the things they bought into were morally bad at a fundamental level that you can point out and say, look, I'm sorry, but at no point in history can I point to this and say there was sufficient justification for this. But by the same token, you you can at least try to understand things within context and then also try to understand the mechanisms for progress that were possible. One one of the things people I I don't think they fully appreciate is how quickly things have moved within the last 300 years of of world history compared to how slowly they moved in in the preceding 15,000 years of of, human history that we're aware of, right? Right. that's the part that they don't get. Like one one of the most interesting, you know, timeline fun facts for me is that the 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 Great Pyramids of Giza, right, were older to Caesar than Caesar is to us. Like that's a you think about that for a second. The pyramids were ancient to Caesar. Like we think of like oh that's all kind of we throw it all in the same time frame. Go go look at what Roman civilization looked like during the early Republic versus what did they look like at the fall of the empire. And, and there's a lot more similarities over that thousand year period or excuse me, 800 year period or whatnot um, than you would find between someone living now and someone living 80 years ago. Forget 800, 80 years ago. Things have moved incredibly quickly. And I think that we do have a lot of people that don't fully appreciate how incredible that is. And then on top of that, you have another group of people, and this is where I put them into two different categories, where you have some group of people that can look at this and say, well, yeah, we know slavery was wrong. We know that uh, disenfranchising women is wrong. We know all these. And so the fact that they were done must mean that the people that were pushing and perpetuating that had some sort of ill intent or were bad people, or they certainly weren't as good as us. And so we should question. We should question whether or not we are living in a system that is as optimal as it could be if it was created by these bad people instead of the good people like us. See, that becomes a logical conclusion if you buy into that narrative. The, the moment you start to put into some sort of historical context and recognize that, oh, wow, this was, this was very unique, 
And, and it was something that happened within certain areas. And when those things did take place, positive things transpired as a result. And they transpired so quickly as a result that we should be appreciative of a system that allowed for that to move so much faster than it was able to move in any other part of the world. But no, we, we're never agreed to that understanding of history. It has to be that, well, if these deadbeat slave-owning morons could have created you know, what we have right now, imagine what we could do. If they were just as enlightened as I was. Oh, yeah, if they were just as enlightened as Cory Bush, then we have a much you know, better. Again, if you buy into that narrative, that is a logical conclusion from the narrative. Um, but the, the thing I go back to is, okay, <laughs> let's look at what you actually want to try and has it been tried other places and how has it worked? I mean, when Ruth Bader Ginsburg gave an interview, I, I love how the, the left just worships her and I don't get it because I didn't think her, her judicial opinions. Now, again, I don't claim to be a, you know, I don't claim to be an attorney, but I can read. Um, and when she sat there and said, if I had to redo the United States Constitution, I wanted, I, if we were going to draw a new Constitution of the United States, I wouldn't base it off of the one that we drew in the 1780s. I would draw it based off of you know, South Africa. Now, why did she want that? Well, because South Africa has all kinds of guarantees in there, not just for basically freedom from oppression from your government. It has a bunch of guarantees to housing and healthcare and educational. Great, and so obviously those things are delivered, right? So, so obviously in South Africa, that's working out real. That's working out real. Oh wait, they right have rolling. Now, right? They have blackouts in South Africa. Well, and, and then again, is, they do in California too. So maybe yeah. that's it. Well, this is the part where you go back to. It's like, okay, can can we assess what actually made these things possible, as opposed to looking exclusively at the people that were, you know, because you're always going to find flaws with the people. Look at the ideas a little bit more closely, and this is the part too where, you know, you made this point a while back. It's I, I can't wait till all the statues of the current woke ideologues are being torn down by next generations woke ideologues that now find them to be like horribly bigoted, you, sexist. You, you know who um uh um Anna Kasparian is, right? Yeah, from the Young Turks. So she came out a couple months ago, and it's gotten worse since then, where she started criticizing some of the things that the left was doing, the very far left was doing on, on the, the gender stuff, yeah. like like rebranding women and calling them new names, you know, yeah. birthing people and stuff like that. And she she got a little bit offended about that and was like, I'm not a cis woman. I'm, I'm not a, not a yeah, person. I'm, I'm a woman. Yeah. Please call me that. And the left, like, crucified her at the stake for for that. And she's been pushing back more and more and more. And... um. There's, there's a, uh, some people on the right have started to notice, um, there's this tweet from somebody named, um, Mar uh, Aaron, uh, McIntyre who said, um, he quote tweeted her when she was like, I'm a woman, please don't ever refer to me as a person with a uterus, birthing person, person who menstruates, et cetera. How do people not realize how degrading this is? You can support the transgender community without doing this. And then he said, no, you can't. The revolution won't stop just because it reaches something you hold sacred. It will consume what you hold dear, and you will find yourself a newly minted conservative. <laughs> and then he said, wow. um, and he's been updating ever since. That was in March, and then he came out in April and did the same thing. And he's like, oh, neocon stage two, mugged by reality. Yeah. Uh, when she came out again and like complained about the left's treatment of her. And then he came out one more time when she was like, you know, I've started noticing that the right is more tolerant of people that, dis that agree with them with, you know, they disagree with them 95% of the time than the left 
uh, tolerate somebody who agrees with them 95% of the time. And yeah. he was like, oh, now we're on conservative <laughs> stage three, the right or more tolerance. <laughs> <laughs> and he's like, at this point, Anna's going to be addressing Turning Point USA at a conference. <laughs> and like, I think there's some truth to that. Um, well, <laughs> I had somebody get, I had somebody get frustrated me because when Anna, when Anna Kasparian put that out, I said, I said, oh, is, is, is somebody running into the consequences of their actions and not appreciating it? And, and someone was like, you know what? You don't convince people like that by mocking them when they get something right. I was like, that's fair. That's fair. By the same token, I, I think it's important sometimes for people to recognize that because what she was trying to do was split hairs. She was trying to say, oh, you can do all of this without having to do that. And it's like, Anna, have you not been paying attention to your own progressive movement? Remember, the Leviathan only swims last. I, I, are you not, he's going to make that a thing. That's going to be a coffee mug. That's Christian's coffee mug. The, the, the problem is, it's like, no, Anna, like, I, I appreciate that you've now recognized that this manifestation of what you like is bad. What I need you to understand is that it was inevitable. That, like, she wants to see these various things. It's like, no, 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 these are bugs in the system. Like, no, Anna, they're not bugs. They're features. I'm sorry. They're features. And it's not because I believe you readily understand that they're actually features and you're just hiding this from us. I, I think Anna is someone that honestly believes that you can have all of progressivism without these sort of manifestations. And I'm like, how, H how do you honestly believe that? Because, because you're going to, you're going to rely on things like, well, no, I'm going to use logic and reason and evidence in order to make a good coherent argument. Anna, they've thrown out logic and reason and evidence. They all believe that's part of a, a systemically patriarchal white supremacist narrative that is used to keep people of color down. How do you imagine that you're going to be able to use the very thing that the movement you've helped foster has now thrown under the bus in service to their overall ideology, which is the accumulation of political power in order to, again, help the oppressed against the oppressors? And and you better be careful what you say there, Anna, because you're getting a little bit close to a pressure. So speaking territory. of this, do you want to use this as an opportunity to, to Actually, bring up the first Actually, there's a question, headline? and I okay. need to get the question out, and then we can move on. Okay. We've got to deliver on our promises on this episode. You okay. cannot get off on a tangent. Sorry. Um, <laughs> no, I'm loving this. So I know you are, but hopefully our audience gets what they need out of this episode that we promised. So um, there's a question from Bastiat. Nick, have you heard of dialectics? It explains why the left hates the West. Um, Bastiat, I have not heard of this, so hopefully they have. Oh, ba Bastiat, yeah. are, you, are you referring to some of the stuff that James Lindsay's talked about? Because if you are, I've sent some of um, some of his stuff to Nick, and I really want Nick to watch this one speech that Lindsay gave to the European Parliament, where he broke down a lot of the stuff that we've brought up on this podcast. But that's another point for for another, um, you know, potential future episode. But um, if you're referring to that the stuff that Lindsay brought up, then I'm, I'm aware of it. I, 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 um, and if Nick's not aware of it, we'll get him up to speed on it. Don't <laughs> yeah, worry. We'll, we'll, I'm, I'm aware we'll of like get the him dialectic. We'll, we'll, uh, she, he, he says no close. Okay. I'm, I'm, I'm aware of like the dialectical method. We're going to have to look that up, Bastian. I'm sorry. So I'm aware of like the dialectical method where with, with, you have two people of opposing viewpoints that essentially come together. Try to find, I don't think that's what he's talking about. I'm, I'm, I'm wondering if this is more of like the Hobbesian dialectic or he said tick history has the best video he's seen on it. Okay. Uh, okay. I'll, I'll, so we'll take yeah, a look at that. I'll take a look. So moving on to uh, some of the other things that oh. we promised to look at in this episode. Can we do that? I got one more question here, but yeah. So, Can you answer it in like 30 seconds? Sure, Nick, how do you feel about Heinlein's uh, notion in Starship Trooper that only persons who serve can vote? In other words, only if you're willing to fight and die for your country. Oh, the vote. difference between being a citizen and a... A, a citizen and a uh, civilian. Civilian and a citizen. Ah. So first of all, the movie sucked and was a horrible... <laughs> 
was a horrible representation of, of Heinlein's overall argument. There was a lot of people looked at Heinlein's argument as being like proto-fascist and stuff like that, which I didn't think it was a fair representation of what he was trying to say. Heinlein's argument in Starship Troopers, if you're not aware, was the idea that within society, within the society on Earth, you had a high degree of like economic freedom, but political freedom was you, you had to have skin in the game to be able to vote or to run for office. And the way you had skin in the game was you had to be, you had to do service. So, and, and usually that was associated with military service. So if you did military service, you could vote, you could run for office. However, you know, again, like um, a lot of people didn't want their kids going and here's the interesting part. A lot of the wealthy people didn't want their kids going into military service because it was incredibly dangerous, right? You're fighting this faraway alien race and the whole deal. Um, and, and so the idea was is that you could still live an incredibly fruitful, economic, prosperous life. And why would you want to get involved in politics? So I think what, what Highland was kind of talking about there was not just this idea that, hey, you can only vote if you've been in the military, but it was also this notion of, okay, what is a society, what should a society's government actually do and look like? Um, I, I don't, I, I don't agree with the overall conclusion that he was going for, but I thought it was a really, really interesting thought experiment behind this whole concept of, you know, it, is it, it is, is, is voting, his idea was, is voting just a birthright, um, especially when you could vote to take away things from other people without contributing. And he saw a lot of problems with that. And, and that is an interesting, that's an interesting thing to debate. I don't know that he, the, the system that he came up with in Starship Troopers was a sufficient answer to it, but I did think it was an interesting thought experiment. So moving on to crazy headlines, right, you guys. Crazy headlines. Okay, we're going to get out of these weeds and get into some new weeds. Hey, in some ways, this is just part two of what we were talking about earlier. With about, Corey Bush. Yeah. Yeah, Corey Bush with the whole idea of like, we need to demand reparations now. Well, California has been out like leading the charge. We're going to one-up you. And California, the California Reparations Task Force wants black residents free to not pay child support, which I think is a really, not the route, not the route. This was not on my bingo card. This was not on my bingo card. Really? Why? That's not surprising. Why, why wouldn't they be able to, why wouldn't they pay child well, support? Because, okay, think about the whole concept. The whole concept of reparations is that government policies were put into place that disproportionately or, or the directly, not, not just not just disparities within society as a result of the way the law was applied, directly targeted people based off of their skin color and then created situations which disadvantaged them socially, politically, and economically. And now we have a situation where, let me get this straight, you, you create another human being, but then you're not obligated to actually take care of them. Well, then who's going to take care of them? Oh, the same government that you're currently telling needs to needs to pay reparations based off of their, you know, admittedly racist policies directed against you for, you know, hundreds of years within, within America. Let me tell you the thought process. But that doesn't make any sense because, uh, I mean, from the time shortly after slavery on through for quite a while, uh, families were staying together and then they stopped. Here's the thought process of the left. Black Americans have a 75% fatherless rate in the home. And so, therefore, forcing child support payments disproportionately impacts black Americans. So we need to exempt them from child support payments as part of this reparations task force in California, which is just such an backwards line of thinking. It's the bigotry of low expectations. I mean— Here's how about you start with asking the question, how did we get to a point where 75% of black Americans are born in a single family household? 
Thomas Sowell has done some really interesting like, um, I, writing on this. If you if you want to read, uh, the, Thomas Sowell did some of the best research uh, I think I've seen anyone do. Where uh, a lot of the a lot of the figures that we hear um, about you know, mechanisms that we use, for, whether it be affirmative action, whether it be the federal welfare state programs, stuff like that on alleviating poverty. And he goes, it's interesting because, because a lot of times those guys want to start the count when it started. They want to start the count when these programs started, as opposed to actually going back several decades before that in order to try to ascertain what is the overall impact been. And Thomas Sowell did some great work. I won't, we won't go totally into it today, but I, I would really encourage you to look up Thomas Sowell and some of the work that he did tracking, um, tracking the impact of the welfare state um, on the very communities that was supposedly designed to assist. And by that, I don't just mean people of color. I mean like poor people in general, right. uh, what the impact was supposed to be. But what I find so interesting about this is the California, again, the, the whole, if your goal, and, and this is what I go back to, what is the actual goal of reparations? Because if someone were willing to sit down with me and have an honest conversation and say, Nick, nobody can deny that the United States government for, you know, all the way till at least the, you know, 1860s uh, was complicit in direct discriminatory laws against black Americans. And then even post that, many states were also complicit in laws that were specifically designed, Jim Crow laws, and therefore there needs to be some reparations for that. If you wanted to sit down and actually have a conversation, okay, what would that look like? Um, you know, who would be responsible for paying it? Who would be, who would actually get, who would get to receive it? If you I would be willing to do that if as a condition of doing all that, we A, recognize that people that did nothing wrong would have to pay and that B, people that were not directly impacted, they might've been indirectly impacted, but not directly impacted would be recipients. But the question is, is what would this mean going forward? If you're going to tell me it would be a good first step, I'm not interested in the conversation at all. Because that's that's totally that's either intellectually and historically ignorant or deliberately dishonest. Or I'm going to start to question whether or not your true motivation is reparation or just fueling another political battle, right? But here's what I find. When I find stuff like this where it's like, okay, this is the part where I feel like the politics starts to creep in that has nothing to do with actual reparations. When you start to tell people that you're no longer responsible for actually feeding and caring for your child. Well, then who is? Well, I, I guarantee you they believe the state is. I guarantee you they, it's not that they don't believe that nobody's responsible for this. It's the question of who will be responsible for it. And once the state becomes responsible for the care, education, health care, well-being of children, those children essentially belong to the state. Ooh, that doesn't sound good. I don't think so. Because they, there's been a couple they of belong. Societies. These are human <laughs> beings that belong to... Oh, there's, there's been a couple of societies within the last, oh, 100 years or so that were pretty big on this whole notion that the, the nuclear family and the family unit is a positive detriment to the state and to the society. Yeah, they, usually the, had the, the, they usually had at least one of three words in their nation's title, <laughs> People's Democratic Republic. Yeah. Um, so uh, what's the next headline? Can we move on? Yeah. I, that, 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 I mean, this I mean, is that, crazy. I just thought that was crazy. <laughs> yeah, all right, next one. Uh, no, no, there you go. Former former New York City Mayor Bill de Blasio splitting from wife who identified as lesbian. And then he, there's a quote that says, you, you can, can feel, feel when, when things, things are, are off. off. <laughs> <laughs> I think, um, I, I look, I, I am not he exactly. I'm not exactly. I, I, we need an Alex Jones jar. Oh my! Remember why? when he remember when he was like they're turning the freaking frogs gay? Oh my gosh! No, what, what, I, what I find, uh, th this is another one of those things where it's, 
she's now identified as a lesbian. It's like, okay, so she Why just, is identified, this happening? just identified as because lesbian. Because liberal now. men turn women lesbian. That's, <laughs> oh, that's what I get from that. Dang. <laughs> oh, queen of the bees from the top rope. Right um, there. Yeah. I, I don't know what else to say about this. I mean, I, I like, I feel bad whenever marriages split up, uh, but um, it, I, I, I feel like, I feel like he, he if you looked at what, so I remember New York City prior to Giuliani. We were talking about this the other day because we just had some friends go up there and being like, man, New York Times Square is starting to get like really kind of dirty and seedy again. And I said, when I first visited New York, I was, I think, 14 or 15 years old. Um, I, I remember, no, I was younger than that. I remember going to New York City when Times Square was peep shows. Uh, and being a kid and walking around and people are constantly handing you out like little pamphlets to go to like some really bad stuff. Right. My, my dad and my, you know, was sitting there walking. They're like, no, no, you don't need that. Yeah. Don't look in there. You don't need that. Like that was times square. And then I went back, um, after the Giuliani days and all of a sudden it was like a wholly owned subsidiary or of the M and M store and like <laughs> Disney. And it was, it was very like family friendly. It's the and, same thing that happened to Vegas. Cause Vegas went through that whole, what happens yeah. in Vegas stays in Vegas and sin city, the whole yeah. thing. And then they're like, Ooh, let's kind of make this more family friendly and try to attract families. Yeah. And then, uh, they just went straight on back to sin well, city I mean, and made it even worse. And that's cr- what it seems went, like New York has done. Crime as well. went down significantly in New York. There's more of And now what do you see? Well, first of all, you had Giuliani, then you have Bloomberg, right? Bloomberg initially ran as a Republican, and then obviously we know what happened with that. But Bloomberg was still kind of like a law and order guy, and and he didn't hate free market capitalism. Then you got Bill de Blasio, who was, Bill de Blasio is a straight up Marxist. Um, bottom line, end of story. He just was like, he fed into all of these like woke progressive narratives and, you're and kinda, he has a lesbian wife and you're, and you're watching what happens. You're watching what happens in New York city as a result now. And it's, yeah, I just, I, I don't know. Like I said, I just thought that was a crazy headline. Former New York city mayor, Bill de Blasio splitting from my, who identified as lesbian with the corner underneath. You can feel when things are off. Like, wow. Mm. That's okay. All right. What's the next one? <laughs> next one. Oh, <laughs> Say it ain't so. Lab test shows substance found at White House was cocaine. I wonder who it was. Uh, look, I don't want to. Uh, I don't want to assume. Oh, hold on one second. Cocaine is a hell of a drug. <laughs> <laughs> Rick James. Yeah, basically. So, all right. So Hunter Biden's been spending a lot of time at the White House you lately. Spoiled it. A lot of time. Well, no, I didn't say. I definitely think it's and Hunter now, Biden's. Now, look. Here's what I'm gonna say. I don't. I believe that everyone gets their uh, day and there should be a thorough investigation. However, if I am, let's say, the Secret Service or the FBI or whoever's going to do the investigation of this, this may be an excellent case to break in the rookie, right? Yeah, like, because then we could send the experienced people to go research those UFOs. Yeah, yeah baby. <laughs> no. <laughs> no, okay, you guys, I'm going to throw out my theory, which is isn't necessarily that it belongs to Hunter. I think Hunter was bringing it to his dad. Listen, guys, we all know that, you know, Biden uh, has a very long history of of liking to sniff things. (laughs) And, you know, this might just be his little pixie dust. He sprinkles on the heads of children in order to sniff heads of children. That is what he does. He sniffs heads of children and necks of women. That is his history. And you know what? I'm just saying 
there are times when he acts a little sketchy when he's giving speeches and stuff and like starts whispering and and then he he starts like telling crazy it's stories. It's not Joe's. It's total. It's 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 Hunter. I can. I, I mean, can, can you can you imagine? The whole like, country knows he's a total. Let, let's just well, say you got, you, maybe I, he's I, saving ten percent for the big guy. <laughs> You know what's so funny is that we've gotten to a point where like like just blatant corruption is is just a, a, a thing that people laugh about on the internet because they know that none of these people are ever going to be held accountable. Like that's how you know that we live in clown world where it's like, yeah, I, I actually wrote something for our circle chat yesterday. Um, and, and the conclusion was basically like DC is doomed. If you want to get involved in politics, get involved at the state level. Do what Nick did. If, if you really hate yourself, run for office. Um, but like, that's, that's where the political fight really is because the, the, the people in DC are just driving us off a cliff, like, and, and accelerating the gas at this point. And I mean, yeah, we just, from a political perspective, we, we absolutely live in clown world and I don't really think that it's going to be getting any better anytime soon. Um, because I mean, think about it, like the, 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 the Trump stuff. In many ways, Joe Biden's Department of Justice is leveling criminal charges against Trump for things that Joe Biden himself is guilty of. Like, I mean, that is an obvious example of, of like political, you know, bias, putting your thumb on the scale of justice to achieve a political end state. At the same time that like all this stuff has just come out of the open. You had these like whistleblowers at the FBI that were like, yeah, we were basically like told not to go after anything related to Hunter. Like, like it was obvious that 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 the Department of Justice has been protecting this guy. And then you also had yeah. the same stuff that came out with the Ukraine stuff. You had some more stuff that came out with millions of dollars that the um that like Chinese communists were giving the Biden family. Like, I mean, just extreme corruption all over the place. Just story after story after story. And people don't care. Yeah. Like we almost never talk about it on this podcast. And the reason why is because like, oh, it's just another another day in Washington, DC. It's a random Tuesday. Oh, it's story about political corruption in the White House. Like it's just a it's a Thursday. That's yeah. it must be a slow news cycle. Like <laughs> now is there is there anything on are we listing anything about um uh President Biden not um, recognizing his seventh grandchild. Oh yeah, when we have—I don't think we have a headline for that one, but well, that, that ended up being an issue. Yeah, they were talking about what a great family man he is, but he instructed the White—I think he instructed his White House staff and his uh, media staff to be very, very careful about how many grandchildren they say well, he has. That's because th this is the type of family this would be: is to quietly give money to the woman, pay her off in order to have the child aborted. I'm quite sure that's what he thinks should have happened to this child. And since it didn't happen, he's going to pretend the child doesn't exist because they weren't able to hush money her out. And that's, that's my assumption is that he wishes his granddaughter had been killed rather than acknowledge her existence. So that's, that's what this type of family does. That's what I think they're all about. And so there we go. Yeah. Well, that doesn't leave much of the imagination. All right. So, all right. So, but we can all agree. We can all agree. Uh, Secret Service, FBI, whoever ends up launching the full-scale investigation for this. I don't think you have to put your top people on this one. We, we, you should probably keep them on the Epstein list. We would really like, we really like them on the Epstein list. Uh, when it comes to find, figuring out which person brought cocaine into the White House 
you're probably not going to need one of those like rooms with like the pictures all over the wall and the yarn going back to, I don't think you're going to need that. I don't think you're gonna, so go, go find the rookie that needs a, what we used to call in the military, a confidence target, right? Really easy first win out of the gate. And, uh, I'm not saying Hunter did it, but that's probably where I'd start my investigation. All right. Next he headline. Probably did. Next headline. Oh, here we go. The CDC gives guidance for trans people, chest feeding kids, um, and are accused of failing to consider possible health risks. Gee, I wonder what the health risks associated with using chemicals, right? Using, using various drugs, uh, to, to get men to lactate, uh, that are, that are not really supposed to lactate and certainly not supposed to lactate for the purposes of feeding children. But this, Major ladies and gentlemen, yeah, this, this right was now. for biological no, no, males. Ladies and gentlemen, ladies and gentlemen, this comes from the CDC. How dare, like, I'm worried. Are we going to get banned by YouTube for pointing out that maybe this is some CDC guidance you shouldn't follow? I just, Why don't you I just, just trust the experts? I, I just can't I believe know. the CDC put out this guidance without ever considering the health risk to these children. It's like these kids are some kind of accessory to be bought and sold by the left. Well, okay, Tina, before you make some crazy accusations, can you come up what, with- about the left buying with, and selling people no, as can you per come up? Can SOP? you come up with one, can you come up with one example of the CDC ever not possibly considering the health risk before giving advice ooh, on something? Ooh. I mean, like in the last three or four years, can you come up with one example? Yeah, crickets. Yeah, uh, no, because no, they, they, no. Are, they are to be trusted at all costs. And if oh, you, yeah. I cannot believe, because of the stellar record the CDC has had, especially over the last four years or so, I cannot believe that you would have any questions as to taking their advice completely confident that the experts working in that esteemed organization would have nothing but your health and mine. I mean, never once has the CDC, to my knowledge, ever been influenced by politics or yeah. perhaps I, ideologies I just, which just, have nothing to do or no bearing in sight. I would like to see a study on these kids about their mental health and, and different health aspects on what happens when you rent a uterus for the purpose of, of a couple of dudes having a, a kid and then they do some kind of hormone therapy in order to lactate and, and force a child to drink its chest juice uh, oh my gosh. Oh. I mean, you know what? This reminds me of this like do you know that scene in uh Star Wars like the latest where they it's like that blue milk stuff? That's yes. this is what I imagine. <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> this is what I imagine. But did we, I, did you, we have to make this so visual? Tina? I'm sorry. That's that's what I'm here for, guys. I do it all the time. But here's the thing is, I don't I don't understand why they aren't considering health risks to the child and to their mental health for being basically passed around as a commodity. Children as a commodity, you know, you're buying and selling these children, you're renting a uterus to do it, and now you're going to force a child to drink from your chest with like hormone enriched. I mean, think about how how people are so into making sure there's no hormones in the food they eat and the milk they drink or or whatever they have they don't want hormones they don't want gmos blah 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 this is a human being with gmos in them basically feeding a baby does anybody else feel like they're taking crazy pills here 
Yeah, yeah, no, no, absolutely, absolutely. Because again, what this what this goes back to is, and, and the reason I I think I'm taking crazy pills is because of what you're saying, Queen of the Bees, that you would once again challenge the CDC as if they're not the subject matter experts on this sort of thing. And the fact that you think it's more important to take into consideration the health and well-being of an infant, which is completely dependent on other people, and put that sort of dependency over the feelings of a dude that wants to try to take hormones in order to breastfeed their uh-uh. child. Chest, chest feed. feed. Chest Excuse feed. Me. Their child. Yeah. Well, you know, in addition to- I mean, to- clearly your priorities are way off that you would put all the emphasis- on the on the actual nurturing care and well-being of the completely dependent infant over the feelings yeah of the the fully grown adult yes dealing with gender dysphoria right like the right. fact that you would prioritize the child over the grown adult is just you know what that just shows yeah. how far we have yet to this is why the left can't celebrate the fourth of july Tina, listen you know of you. we're supposed to call it chest feeding we're supposed to call it a bonus hole where there's all kinds of nice new words that women are supposed to attribute to their body parts that be you know in, to, in order to be inclusive you guys it this is just disgusting but um uh, Brian Betts wants to know what's actually in the guidelines, the CDC guidelines. As far as for health of the child, there's nothing there. That's that's why they're under fire. There is nothing there for the health of the child to, you know, as far as nourishment and nutrition goes. But here you go. You, you have a click on what we can I'm take getting it major ick factor right now. Oh, yeah. Well, it's, it's hard. To, whenever you start talking about chest feeding, it's pretty much hard oh, to do that. Even that um, phrase. No, it's like, so do we have any other, we have any other headlines? No, that was just, <laughs> we, meant to, we meant to use that. That ain't a headline. That ain't a hell of a drug. That was from a Dave Chappelle series. Anyways, all right, I think we've gone through all of our crazy headlines. So, uh, yeah, if you were... <clears throat> if you were attempting to buy cocaine at the White House or learn more about chest feeding... Um, uh, all of our all of our government institutions were uh, were really pulling for you over the last uh, several days. So listen, I think we're gonna uh, we're gonna go ahead and wrap it up right here. here here's what I want to here's what I want to kind of the main takeaway from everything we talked about today. Um, again, we I think we had a pretty robust conversation with respect to answering that first question, and that is, does the left hate America? And I, I'm going to go ahead and stick with what I said earlier. Uh, I think there's a lot of people that associate themselves with the left that don't fall into what we generally refer to on this. Um, podcast as leftism. And, and I know people claim to not like isms, but they exist for a reason. And leftism is not the, the liberalism that we sometimes associate with kind of a, an older democratic party. It's not one that we associate with, um, you know, straight up Marxism or, or what has become the, the woke version of progressivism. But more and more what I'm seeing with respect to who the left chooses to elect, and this is an important part that goes back to Christian's point. Christian takes a little bit more of a hard line view on this one, and I think he has I think he has a good justification. Essentially goes to this. If this isn't what people on the left believe, then why do they keep electing it? And why is it that every time we hear things like nobody wants to blank? And the moment you show that, no, somebody does want to do that, and oh, in fact, they are doing it, and oh, in fact, they're celebrating it, the response is never, oh, my gosh, I didn't realize that. That's going too far. No, the response always seems to be then to attack the person that brought up the very thing they claimed wasn't happening. And so at some point, you are going to have to question if the ideology, and I do believe leftism as an ideology, 
cannot stand the United States. Like it, it cannot accept the United States as a fundamentally good place, or it cannot accept the founding of the United States or the Declaration of Independence or the Constitution or the philosophy that went into actually creating those. It can't accept those things as fundamentally good. And the reason why it can't is because what it wants to turn the United States into bears no resemblance to those founding philosophies or ideologies or, or doctrines. And it's easy to, and it's easy to point just at things like the racism that was inherent within slavery or slavery as an institution itself. It's easy to point at those things and say, that's the real root of the United States. We know it wasn't, but you have to make that claim because if you can make that claim, you can essentially tarnish everything else about the U.S. If you can make the claim that at its most fundamental level, the United States is unworthy of being cherished or unworthy of being preserved within its current form because of that fundamental flaw at the beginning. If you can make that argument, well, then you can, you can now put people on a path to adopting a version of the United States that bears, again, no resemblance to the foundational principles of individual liberty, private property rights, constitutionally protected or constitutionally limited government, the idea that all of us are created equal and endowed by our creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. You can't have those things if you want the sort of society where the government is going to play a much larger role in every aspect of your life with the way that we're going to determine hierarchy because the left doesn't want to get rid of hierarchy. They want to change the way that we look at it is no longer based on even an attempt at meritocracy, right? We, we can argue all day long about whether or not we've achieved it, but Compared throughout history, have we achieved one of the greatest attempts at a hierarchy of meritocracy than anywhere else in the world? Yeah, I think we can. But if you want to get rid of that and you want to change it to the Marxian notion of from each according to their abilities and to each according to their needs, then you are going to necessarily create a hierarchy of needs, not of abilities, of needs. And in such a system, you can't have one that elevates individual rights, that elevates personal responsibility, that elevates free market economics, that elevates property rights, that elevates the concept of the nuclear family, that elevates a far uh, a significantly smaller role for government and the use of government coercion in order to achieve end states. You can't accept those things because it is antithetical to what you need in order to remake Amer America in the Marxist image. And so that's why we generally come to the conclusion that while there are some people that associate with the left that do not hate America, leftism as an ideology in its current form absolutely does. Absolutely does. And it will be happy to use certain notions or concepts like constitutional rights or like created equal in order to achieve its objectives. But at the end, it doesn't want the same system of government. It doesn't want the same system of economics. It sees them as fundamentally flawed and evil. And I believe that one of the primary reasons why it does see it that way is because it has been overwhelmingly successful, overwhelmingly successful compared to the sort of countries which have adopted the very philosophies the left claims will actually achieve greater political freedom, greater economic freedom, greater social mobility. The fact that everywhere the left has gotten the various cultural, political, and economic institutions in place, it has resulted in people trying to flee those countries to come to the United States is a never-ending embarrassment for them. And rather than compete with the United States, they've become convinced that they have to actually destroy the fundamental notion of what it was, why it is, and what it should be going forward. All right, thank you very much for joining us on this episode. Please consider going over and joining on to Circle. Again, a lot of the episodes that we choose, a lot of the ideas that we get come from the people that contribute within that group, and we thank them very much for doing so. Thank you for watching, commenting, and thank you for donating, and we will see you next episode.